36, my fiance. Yeah. Welcome to No BS on this Friday night. Uh, today is November 6, 2020. Um, my name is Shree, and I'm filling in today for the great Callan McClurg. Joining me are my co-hosts, as always, Trevor Williams and Packers superfan Isaiah Leon. As well, uh, we are joined by Ryan Schreiner. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing pretty good today, Shree. You know, getting you know ready for some fantastic college football this weekend. A lot of good matchups in the top 10 so we're gonna get some a lot of shifting around this week so can't wait for some of those games yeah i agreed there um definitely getting into the kind of the thick of college football season with the pac-12 coming back and we'll have more on that later uh ryan how you doing i see your browns are five and three um you know tough game last week against the um las vegas raiders but you think they bounced back this week I mean, this is their bye week, but in the next week, I think they will do very well. I mean, we're getting Austin Hooper back. Hopefully, we'll get Wyatt Teller back, who's been absolutely key for our offensive line. But, um, you know, I I know it was a tough game against the Raiders. We did not play well at all, but this is November, and the Browns aren't mathematically eliminated to to miss the playoffs. In fact... We are actually in the driver's seat to make the playoffs if we can just stay ahead of the Raiders in terms of overall record. So I am sitting very, very happy right now. I mean, I'm showing off the Browns record in my name on this stream. You would have told me I'd be doing that two or three years ago. I would have laughed at myself. So things are going fantastic here. I'm ready to enjoy a weekend of football just like Trevor said, although I will say the game of the week will be Ohio State Rutgers. Can Rutgers <laughs> make it less than 35 points against Ohio State? Very intriguing matchup. We'll have to see. But in all due credit, Rutgers has played extremely well this year by Rutgers standards. They beat Michigan State, which beat Michigan. So by transitive property, Rutgers is better than Michigan. Keep that in mind. Absolutely. And we had a lot of uh, discussion about Jim Harbaugh and his one in six record against the Buckeyes and the Spartans at home. Um, Will definitely be interesting to watch that Rutgers game. I think the spread is actually 38. So um, we'll see whether or not Ohio State's able to beat the spread there. And last but not least, we have our Packers super fan, Isaiah Leon. How are you doing today, Isaiah? Um, see you rocking that Packers shirt. So, uh, so assume you're doing pretty well there. Well, first of all, let's just say last night's result was expected. Um, I 
turned off the game when it was 21-3, about a minute left before halftime. But this is not why I'm wearing this cheese head shirt. I'm wearing this cheese head shirt because of something that uh, I had said on Facebook uh, based on the election, and that thing came true. So I had to, you know, live up to my promise as any man should do. And I'm rocking this beautiful cheese cheese head right now. But you know, like like Cal, I mean, like Trevor and uh, Ryan said, you know, I'm looking forward to a great week of football uh, starting tomorrow with. USC Arizona State at 9 a.m. The fire Clay Helton train gets revved up and ready to go. Uh, my my guy Keaton Slovis tomorrow is his coming out party. He's gonna you know jump right into that Heisman race. Um, and also I can't wait tomorrow to rock this shirt, which I've been wanting to show Ryan for a long, long time, and that is the Brock Purdy goat shirt. I don't give a damn that Trevor Lawrence has all the great looks and has the best arm. I don't care that Justin Fields can run around like he's the second coming of Lamar Jackson and Michael Vick, and, you know, he has a cannon of an arm like Patrick Mahomes. Give me Brock Purdy on my San Francisco 49ers any day of the week over Trevor Lawrence, uh, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Zach Wilson. I want this kid. I don't want anybody else but this kid. Let's go to Ryan. I think think Ryan has something to say about that, Isaiah. For everyone watching, I was doing my breathing exercises to try to calm (laughs) me down from just the absolute insanity that Isaiah was saying over there in regards to him being the goat. I mean, it's a good practice in breathing exercises. That's all I can say. I mean, it's it, it, it tests your patience and it tests your resilience, but we got through it and we can move on and have rational conversations. They are with the Big 12, though. Absolutely. With Isaiah on the show, though, I'm not sure how much how many of our takes are going to be rational, but let's let's move on to our first topic of the day. So we are going to talk some NFL, and we are going to talk uh, some about last night's game where the 49ers lost to Isaiah Leung's Green Bay Packers. Um, so I'm going to go to Trevor. I'm going to go to you first uh, with your thoughts on the game. So what were your thoughts on last night's game? Obviously, the 49ers are like a wounded gazelle at this point in time. They're, there's no weapons. They're just struggling to finish the season, and the Packers took care of business. Like, what else do you want Aaron Rodgers to do? Goes easy on them? The man put up four touchdowns and over 305 yards in this game. A solid performance by Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. And what else? You're not supposed to expect anything else from this game. The Packers were destined to win this game, and they proved it. Bottom line, end of story. Nothing else needs to be said about this game. Absolutely, Trevor. I agree with you there. You know, everybody knew that the 49ers maybe weren't the team that they were at other points in the season going into this game, but the Packers went ahead and took care of business. Ryan, I'm going to go to your next. What are your thoughts on the game? Um, I know we were talking about it a little bit before and may not have been as exciting a game as, as we'd all liked it to be when we saw that on the, on the regular season schedule. Um, but nonetheless, what did you think of uh, Green Bay's win last night? 
what I thought of it was after about or after about the uh, first quarter, somewhere in the middle of the second quarter, I turned the game off and just played Among Us on my computer. I mean, it was just it was not a fun game to watch. But looking at the stats, the only sh the only thing that I'm ashamed of is that the 49ers scored two just garbage time touchdowns because it made the score and made the game as a whole seem closer than it actually was. Just looking at the stats and just reading everything about it, this was a good old-fashioned butt whooping, but the score made it seem like, oh, maybe the 49ers were competitive for stretches of the game, when in actuality, that was not the case. Take away the last six minutes of the game, it is a 34-3 blowout, and honestly, this was just one of the worst games of football all year. Not in terms of the play by both teams, because the Packers played well as they were supposed to, but in terms of the entertainment value, I'm sorry, this is a pass for me. I'm one of the biggest football fans out there, and I couldn't watch this game. I... I had better things to do on a Thursday night, and I'm not normally one to have better things to do on a Thursday night. So, yeah, just nothing else needs to be said. The 49ers put up stats that look comparable. I mean, look at the stats. Uh, Nick Mullins put up 291 passing yards to Aaron Rodgers' 305. But if you look slightly deeper, it's because... Like, probably half of those came during the last six minutes of the fourth quarter during the literal definition of garbage time. So, yeah, this game just wasn't entertaining. I mean, it's a shame because if both teams are fully healthy, this could have been one of the best games of the year. But, unfortunately, the 49ers have, like, eight, 80, million in, uh, 80 million in salary cap on the IR. So, yeah, just, just not a fun game to watch. And then factor in the uh, COVID cases or the close contact to COVID cases to like their left tackle. Uh, I think there was a couple other receivers that had it. So, yeah, just just not fun. Yeah, I think I agreed with you there. Like, um, you know, for me personally, before the season started, we looked at the Thursday night schedule and we saw, you know, Green Bay versus um, San Francisco. And you're like, wow, this is a rematch of last year's game, which was – I think a little bit one-sided towards San Francisco, um, you know, is, is Green Bay going to be able to come in and, and put up more of a fight? Um, but obviously, you know, with a lot of the injuries on the San Francisco side, as well as, um, you know, maybe Green Bay just hitting their stride, it was not as competitive a game as we thought probably before the season. Um, next, I'm going to go to the Packers super fan, Isaiah Leung. Your Packers defeated the 49ers 34-17 to yesterday. What do you think? Great win for the Rodgers and the Pack, huh? First of all, let me just say this. Ladies and gentlemen. What do you think? Great win for the Rodgers and the Pack, huh? Sorry for the technical difficulties, guys. It's, it's MI6. What do you expect? We always have technical difficulties. But let me just say this. Like the great Ted Mosby of How I Met Your Mother once said, Nothing good ever happens after 2 a.m. in the morning. And those words cannot be more true. Never, ever, ever. I don't care, you know, if it's a big game or a big election or whatever. Never go on social media at 
4 a.m. or 5 a.m. when you're extremely drowsy because you might do something really stupid like I did with this, this cheese head thing and post some stuff on social media that you're going to regret big time later. So that's just some life advice for you guys, ladies and gentlemen. But before I dive into this game, let me just say this. Roger Goodell, I hope that you enjoyed this abomination last night that was Packers Niners because your stubborn ass refused to to push this game to Sunday since you wanted the money. So you subjected every American to watch this absolute poop fest. You could have moved it back to Sunday and it would have been a far, far better game because our COVID test that was a false positive Kendrick Ford, who tested positive, uh, I believe it was on Wednesday, and then on Thursday he tested negative, but he couldn't play that day because, like, the NFL has this, some stupid one-day rule for false positives, and then uh, all the players that reportedly came into contact with him, like Trent Williams, our left tackle, who was one of the best left tackles in the NFL, he couldn't play as well because he came into contact with him, and also, um, Brandon Ayuk, our number one wide receiver, he couldn't play as well because he came into close contact, and Debo Samuel as well. So, like, that one-day rule is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, the 49ers could have had all of our playmakers come back on Sunday, and we would have given Green Bay a much better challenge than what we gave them on Thursday night. But no, you decided you wanted the rest, the, the money and the rest of America had to suffer because of you. So thank you so much, Roger Goodell, for, for wasting my time, wasting Ryan's time, wasting Shree's time, wasting Steven's time, wasting Trevor's time, and wasting every American's time with that absolute poop fest that we saw on TV last night. But to the game itself, this was expected, like Ryan said. I think a two-year-old could have predicted this result was coming. The 49ers, who were already decimated by injuries, were decimated even more this week when, you know, Kendrick Bourne, like I said earlier, their number two receiver tested positive for COVID, and their top left tackle, Trent Williams, uh, he came into contact with him. Brandon IU, Debo Samuel, they all came into contact with him, so they couldn't play. Uh, because of that one-day rule. So the 49ers came into this game severely hampered, and it was going to take a Herculean effort from Nick Mullins, Kyle Shanahan, and the rest of the 49ers for them to pull this off against Aaron freaking Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. But I, this might sound absolutely nonsense. It might sound absolutely delusional, but I was more impressed with the San Francisco 49ers performance on Thursday night than the Green Bay Packers. Because like you guys said it, the Green Bay Packers were going up against the 49ers practice squad. They were supposed to come in and take care of business and beat the San Francisco 49ers by over 20 points. If they had come in and, you know, this had been a close game and they had won by a touchdown, then the alarm bells would have been ringing everywhere Uh across the nation about the Green Bay Packers. But no, they took care of their took care of business like they were supposed to. The reason why I was impressed with the 49ers is because there was a lot of guys that weren't supposed to play in this game 
They came out and they actually played really well. Like Richie James Jr. Richie James Jr., I get the Packers defense. You know, they're not that good. But this guy was juking out players all night. He was running by guys. He was showing off his speed. I think he had what? Um, uh, he had nine catches for 184 yards and a touchdown. If Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk had played in this game, Richie James Jr. would not have gotten a shot. Richie James Jr. showed America that he's a competent wide receiver in the NFL. Nick Mullins, like, he put up 22 for 35, 291 yards, one touchdown, one interception. He wasn't that bad, but he wasn't, like, great. He played an all right type of game. Uh, the defense, I'm surprised that they held Green Bay to 37 points considering the fact that the, there was no pass rush whatsoever in this game from the 49ers. The 40, I mean, the Packers could have legitimately gone back to Green Bay, uh, had some, had a picnic at Lambeau Field, and then could fly back to San Francisco, and they still would have been able to have time to throw the football. That's how pathetic the 49ers' pass rush was. So I was surprised that the defense only held them to 37 points. I thought the Packers were going to beat us by 50 points or more, considering the fact the 49ers were so hampered. But considering it was – or. It was and it ended up being 20 points. That's impressive in of itself. I I, I don't even have a reaction to that. I'm gonna go with Ryan uh, because it seems like he does. Okay, Isaiah. You're saying that the NFL needed to move this game to uh Sunday. Well, the problem with that is all the players you listed that had the false positive, they were all on the offensive side. And Aaron Rodgers was absolutely toasting this defense. I mean, it's not the 49ers' fault. They've been hit with injuries like crazy. But let's take a look at the 49ers' defense. Let's see. So on defense, they have a total of three good players. Armstead, a very good player. Warner, very good linebacker. And uh, Vernet, or Verrett? Is that how you pronounce that, Isaiah? Yep. Yes, Verrett. Yep. So that's three players. So all, all you have to do as an offense to just score at will is not run the ball up the middle right into Warner as they didn't do a bunch. Aaron Jones only had 15 carries. Block one dude. Just put two guys on offense to do that. And not throw to one cornerback. That opens up basically so much of the field. Just, just avoid running up the middle block one guy and just single coverage everyone else because no one else is that good due to injuries and not throw to one corner. So regardless of this this game is played today or Sunday, they would have destroyed the 49ers defense and those subtractions on the offensive side would not have resulted in 35 points. And if this game is competitive throughout and Rodgers and the Packers offense would have scored 40-plus. So, yeah, um, this result would have been a blowout if it was played on Thursday and or Sunday. Maybe would have been slightly more competitive than just one quarter if it was played on Sunday because the offense may have showed some signs of life. But, Isaiah, don't act like this Thursday versus Sunday deal would change the result, or even change it from an absolute blowout. This is a blowout if it's played on Thursday, this Sunday, next Sunday, two Sundays from now, three Sundays from now. It doesn't matter. This is a blowout no matter what. So I get 
that you like to have this wishful thinking that the 49ers played really well, and it was somehow a good game. This is somehow positive for the 49ers. But in actuality, everyone on your team is hurt, and the few subtractions would not have turned the tie in this game in any meaningful way. It wouldn't have been a blowout. The only question is, would it have been competitive for more than a quarter? That's the only difference you'll have So if it was played on Thursday versus Sunday. As much as I hate coming to the NFL's defense on this, because this decision was clearly motivated by just money, which of course it is. They're a business. They want money. I don't fault them for that. But yeah, Isaiah, this makes no difference. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I'm definitely in agreement with Ryan. Um, the, the score wasn't even close. The game wasn't even as close as the score indicated. So the fact that, you know, they lost by 20 points or 17 points, whatever they lost by, it doesn't really mean much because the entire game from beginning to end was completely controlled by the Packers. And the Niners, you know, just scored when when they kind of let their foot off the gas and they knew that they were going to win the game. So I'm kind of in agreement with Ryan on this one. Um, Isaiah, we'll go to you, but first, please vote in our poll. Will the 49ers make the playoffs? Please comment your thoughts and vote in the Facebook poll. Isaiah, let's go to you. Um, so I have a couple more observations from this game. Um, excuse me. Uh, number one, Eric Armstead, the highly prized defensive end, he needs to be cut because the 49ers, they gave him a five-year a hundred million dollar contract. They chose him basically over DeForest Buckner, and he has been exposed this season. You know, he's only got what two and a half sacks all season long. And yesterday he was basically MIA uh, the entire game. So, I mean, the guy, the guy can't get pressure without star pass rushers around him. He's not a game changer. He's not a guy that you pay $20 million for. No, he's a guy that Please you pay like, Isaiah. maybe like $7 million or $8 million to line up and stop the run because he's good at stopping the run. But when quality pass rushers aren't around him, he can't do anything. Even I could have blocked. That's how... how pathetic he was and how pathetic he's been all year long. And secondly, Justin Skull. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Justin Skull or Skull, the uh, the center that played last night, he's got to be cut as well. The guy couldn't block to save his life. You had guys rushing after Nick Mullins. Um, yeah, like this. This. No interception! Why would you throw it, man? Take the side! Oh! Come on, Jimmy, we gotta get this first down! Hasty's open! Hasty, oh my god, you take a damn sack! He was wide open! Are you far? <laughs> Listen, Justin Skull was getting thrown to the ground all night by Packers defenders. I mean, he was making those guys look like Reggie White. It was so humiliating. The guy can't block to save his life. He can't run block. He can't pass block. He needs to be off my team. 
Uh, I don't even know why they moved him to center. It it just infuriates me, man. Like, you had a perfectly good center in Daniel Brunskill, who Kyle Shanahan somehow, someway decided to put him on the bench because he wanted to see what Justin Skull could do, and it ended up being an abomination. So Justin Skull needs to be cut. Eric Armstead should have never be, be given that massive contract. He needs to go as well. Wow. Quite a rant there from Isaiah. Uh, Ryan, I'm going to let you respond to that. After only 24 minutes of being back, because I took a long break from podcasting for a while because I was busy with like work and uh, study for my CPA, but just, just look at my hair. That's what happens when you join Isaiah when he's at his peak rage because he spouts just insanity after insanity. I saw Trevor earlier. He looked like he didn't have any life in his eyes. The life was drained from him. Listen to that rant. Isaiah, you said you want to cut, not trade, cut Armstead. You <laughs> do realize he is a top 25 if not no he's a top 20 defensive end in the league with all these injuries he's the 18th rated defensive end according to pro football focus and that's with these injuries if he had nick bosa if he had all the defense available he'd probably be graded better so to say he needs to be cut is insanity it's low-key one of your worst takes you've ever had and i don't say this lightly the man has been playing very well you look at sack numbers well sacks don't mean everything you know run defense a thing you know pressures are a thing so just looking at his sack numbers and just saying oh he's bad he's probably getting double teamed most plays because he's the only good defender and you want to cut him are you insane yeah, you know oh my god You want to cut him? Please. I hope the 49ers cut him because I would hope the Browns get him because he is a good player. If I, I would say if he was available in free agency and the Browns signed him to the deal he got, I would be ecstatic with this year's play because he is graded like a top 20 defensive end with no help around him because of injuries on the defensive line. So to say he needs to be cut... To quote Stephen A. Smith, that's blasphemous. Yes! 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 Okay, so let's go to some user comments. Uh, the comments have been blowing up since, uh, you know, Isaiah's tirade here. Uh, Casey King says, hi, guys. Good evening to you as well. Well, good evening, Casey. Thanks for tuning in. He also says, Isaiah, I don't see Nick Mullins as your long-term QB. I agree. I don't see Nick Mullins as the future either. Um, I'm with you there, Casey. Uh, Chardol says that he thought you were a 49ers fan, Isaiah, and you're such a big fan of Nick Mullins, and he can't believe you're a traitor and betray your team like that. He's going to be a 49ers fan if they win or lose, not like you jumping onto the Packers bandwagon there. Um, also, we have Chardol saying that he thinks that the San Francisco 49ers will make it to the playoffs. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. Well, I don't think so, Chardot, but we shall see. Moving on, um, it's been an entertaining topic, but we're going to move on from this to the NBA. So 
the NBA recently announced a 72-game season starting on December 22nd. Um, so it seems like it's going to be a pretty packed schedule, and they're going to have limited fans in the stands to watch the games. So I'm going to go to you, Ryan. What do you think of this move from the NBA? Uh, are you excited to see some basketball once again? Okay, there's two ways you have to look at it. First of all, you have to look at it from the NBA's perspective. If they start it later than December 22nd, sometime early 2021, I've heard that it could cost them a reported $1 billion. So they obviously are looking at that number and saying, well, we have to do it then. And I think the Players Union, from what I've seen and what I've read, is in agreement. But the other side of the coin is... You have to feel for like the Lakers, the Heat, the uh, the Denver Nuggets, just anyone that made it any distance in the playoffs. That is such a quick turnaround to go from winning an NBA championship or going far in the playoffs to like, what, two months later, starting up a whole new season, starting that grind over again. I think, I forget who said this, but one, I think it was Danny Green. Danny Green said that he wouldn't expect LeBron or Anthony Davis to be with the team for the first month of the season. And if they start at this date, I don't think that's unreasonable. LeBron is, what, 36 years old, if not 37? He isn't a young man anymore. That quicker turnaround is slightly ridiculous. And I know the argument for teams that didn't make it to the bubble, saying that their offseason would be insanely long, and I get that, but... At the end of the day, those teams suck. Who cares about them? The uh, best teams in the league are going to have such a quick turnaround. It's going to diminish the product for the first uh, few months of the season. Also, if you thought the uh, Clippers, Cl ah, Clippers load management was bad last year, just wait for this year with a quick turnaround and uh, the uh, puppet, that is Ty Lue, coaching the team. Kawhi Leonard is going to take so many days off. Paul George is going to take so many days off. And this is completely unrelated to the NBA topic, but uh, I feel like I have to say this. I feel like my opinion of Doc Rivers has changed. I think instead of him being too lenient, which I've said in previous shows, I actually think he may have pushed back against Kawhi Leonard and against Paul George and the, these other guys. And so... He was tossed out because the star players didn't like him. And why do I say this? Because the Clippers' decision to hire the head coach whose literal only claim to fame is being a puppet for LeBron James, that's your best option. And to call him and their owner called him the best head coach in the league. I I feel like the Clippers are gonna be worse next year in terms of their uh, bad culture, in terms of their load management, in terms of just general undiscipline on the basketball court so honestly if you don't like the Clippers like I do I feel like next year is going to be even better because they'll probably have a worse regular season because they'll be probably there will probably be even more load management and the playoffs they'll probably lose in the second round again because if the problems were under Doc Rivers Tyron Lue's not going to improve them at all so oh I I I can't wait for the NBA season to watch the Clippers just continue to falter, which I know they will. But back to the topic at hand, this is just going to suck for the teams that made it to the bubble and made it for made it pretty far in the playoffs because it's such a quick turnaround. And 
if they come back and actually participate in full, I feel like there's going to be some unnecessary injuries. Like, I feel like the, a team like the Denver Nuggets or the Lakers could have a few key injuries to their starting lineup. Like, for the Lakers, uh, JaVale McGee or uh, Bradley could get an injury early on, and that could seriously affect their season. So I feel like starting it this soon will have diminished will make it a diminished product for the whole year for like the teams that made it far in the playoffs. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, and, and it looks like our viewers are agreeing with you too. Christy Wilson says uh, the NBA should have started sometime in late January. I think the players will benefit more health wise. Definitely agreed there. Uh, Christy James Gonzalez says the Knicks and all the non bubble teams have had time off since March and they should be fresh. Maybe an advantage for those teams that were not good enough to make it into the bubble. So maybe we do some see some of those teams in the playoffs just because of fresh legs and them getting off to a better start. And Steven doesn't understand the value of a regular season, even when the greatest player in basketball right now, Giannis, and the Bucks melted down harder than meltdown Manning ever did in the playoffs, um, which, which is true, but that doesn't change the fact that he's the best player in basketball. Stephen Wang. Um, and then also James Gonzalez says, my Clippers again making the wrong moves. Chances of Kawhi leaving next summer are sky high. Definitely agree with agree that. With that. Uh, don't think Ty Lue is the correct move there. And please vote in our poll. Should the NBA season start on Martin Luther King Day or on Christmas? Comment down below and please vote. Of course, that Martin Luther King Day start would be kind of a – mid to late January start as opposed to a late December start like we're seeing um, right now. So Trevor, I'm going to go over to you. What do you think of this new NBA season uh, starting on December the 22nd and going for 72 games? To me, it seems like they're going to have to pack a big schedule, you know, only nine games less or 10 games less than a regular schedule into uh, a time that's two months shorter because of the Olympics in the summer. Uh, so what what is your opinion on that? Do you think it's too many games uh, in a small stretch of time, especially coming off, you know, a season that ended far later than than what everyone expected due to the coronavirus crisis? Well, since you now factored the Olympics into this picture, I think having a 72-game season is way too long in that sense. I understand you have some teams who didn't play, and now they're all well-rested, and if you push the season back to late January – they're just sitting around. And we obviously seen what athletes look like when they haven't played in so long. So I think they're going to be concerned about the viewing and seeing sloppy play. So I think fans don't want that. So I can see why they're leaning, pushing the season up to December 22nd. But also keep in mind, we've seen NBA lockouts before and they where they end up playing 65 games or 60 games. So in reality, they could still play shortened seasons and getting things back on track for the 2022 season next time around. So I would rather them play a short game season, making sure the players are healthy and being able to play in the Olympics. Cause like just transitioning from the NBA finals, like LeBron James, assuming that he makes the Olympic team. Now you're going off playing the best people in the world in their respective countries. That's just so much wear and tear on your body. Winning a game seven in NBA finals, just to transition into the Olympic stage and just being able to, ball against the best in the world. So I think short season is probably the best way for a lot of these players. Definitely agreed with that. Even if they're starting on, you know, December 22nd, I would not personally want 
a 72-game season, especially when they have to finish up by the Olympics. And then some of the players would have to go and play for the United States or different countries for the Olympics. And it seems like most of our viewers agree. Um, Christy Wilson says MLK Day. James Gonzalez also says they think he should. He thinks that they should start on the Thursday before MLK Day because the opening games are on TNT and TNT has, you know, those basketball games on Thursday night. Um, and Casey King says he hopes his Lakers can repeat, but it could be a challenge and he could see the Warriors having a bounce back season um, with those pieces that they have. And he also thinks that they should, uh, they should not send NBA players to the Olympics, but it should be amateurs. But since they are, it should probably be something more like a 60-game season rather than a 72-game season. And James Gonzalez um, also comments that the 99-strike season was a 50-game season, and he wouldn't mind seeing that season. I agree. I think that you know 82 games is too many, even for a regular year. I would love to see something like they did with baseball, where they like you know cut the season. Well, in baseball, they cut it in like almost third. But I would love to see them cut it in half and, and play that 50 games, maybe rather than the 72 game season. Uh, I'm going to go to you, Isaiah. I know you kind of share some of our thoughts on this topic. Uh, I'll let you elaborate on what you think about the NBA season. Yeah, but before I do that, though, I got to make a correction. When I was talking about Eric Armstead and his contract, I actually made a mistake. Um, his contract is actually five years, $85 million instead of five years, 100 So I got to apologize to the audience right there for that. But um, in so terms that makes of your, – Sorry, that makes your take even worse. You were saying that they were paying him too much money because they were paying him $20 million a year. Now you reduce that number by $15 million over five years. So that makes your take so much worse um, about them having to cut him because he gets paid too much. But go on, continue your point. All right. So about this season, you know, I've said multiple times on various programs here on the network that I'm really opposed to it because as basically what Ryan and Trevor said, and that is, you know, you're coming off a year in which you basically played – a whole calendar of year, a whole calendar year of basketball. Granted, you did have three months in between to rest and recover and refresh, but then you went back and played another three, two, three months of basketball. And that wasn't like, you know, you were coasting. That was intense postseason basketball. So that put a lot of wear and tear on the body. And for this quick turnaround to happen and to start the season, literally what? like two months after you finished uh, the NBA season from the previous year, I just don't think it's a good idea. You know, I think that there's going to be a lot of injuries uh, early on, especially from teams that uh, were in the bubble, played a long time in the bubble. Um, I think you will see a lot of load management. I could see a lot of uh, superstars like Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Devin Booker, um, Jamal Murray, uh, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, uh, those guys, I could honestly see them. I mean, even Jimmy Butler, too. I could see them taking, like, the first couple of months off and just say, see you in February when the games actually start to matter. Um, and I just hate this idea as well of having – of playing 72 games because, like you said, Shri, you're packing a lot of games in. You're probably going to see a lot of back-to-backs. You're probably going to see a lot of 
back to back to backs and maybe even back to back to back to backs without with how they have to, you know, pack everything in because there's no way you're going to be able to fit 72 games uh, in uh, to a season starting on uh, the final couple of weeks of December. So with, you know, the quick turnaround with all that wear and tear you just had on your body from the previous season and now you have to probably play a ton of back-to-backs and a lot of back-to-back-to-backs. This is not a good idea, and I could honestly see a lot of injuries in the NBA uh, for this upcoming season. Yeah, definitely agreed there. Shardol thinks that it should be started on Christmas Day, and, and that would be quite a Christmas present to get NBA basketball back. Um, I'm going to go to Ryan here. It seems like he has something to say. Okay, there's two things. First of all, and after I say this, we're not going to talk about Devin Booker anymore, but I just have to call out one thing. And Isaiah's point, he was like, he said, well, superstars like LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, <laughs> Devin Booker, and uh, Jimmy Butler may take the first couple months of the year off. So he kind of just like snuck Jimmy Butler there right in the, or not Jimmy Butler, snuck Devin Booker right in the middle just so we wouldn't notice so that he could trick our brains into thinking that he's a superstar but i'm just gonna give credit where credit's due though it's pretty clever isaiah you're trying to subtly implant the idea that uh devin book is a superstar into the minds of our viewers i'm just i just have to call it out because i i don't think it's fair to our viewers because they're smart they're smarter than that they're a very smart group i mean so yeah i mean i'm not gonna let you get away with that isaiah so that's point number one and point number two is we were talking about superstars that made it far into the playoffs. Now, remind me, did the, the did the did the Suns make the playoffs? Oh no, they didn't because they had such a bad regular season that going undefeated in the bubble during the regular season portion didn't let them get in the playoffs. So, yeah, the people that would take months off are the people that made it far into the playoffs and puts playoff minutes onto their bodies, which. I'm sorry to say, Devin Booker still has the same number of playoff minutes as me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah. That's, you're, you're not going to trick our audience into thinking that Devin Booker deserves a rest or that he's a superstar. I won't let it happen. And Trevor, keep me honest here. Before the show, we were talking to Isaiah, and, I, and we specifically said no mentions of Devin Booker. <laughs> Am I right on that? You are right. <laughs> And somehow he managed to slide in the Devin Booker. Uh, never ceases to amaze me. Anyway, so we have Stephen Wang who takes offense to me calling Giannis the best player in the world. He says he's never seen the best player in the world melt down like Giannis has in the playoffs. Um, um, LeBron James versus the Mavericks. And I'm saying that as a LeBron James fan. So, you know, we've seen it before. Jordan had bad playoff series. People are allowed to, you know, be human, Stephen. I've said this before and I'll say it again, but but whatever. Um, Giannis' second best player is Chris Middleton, who takes James Harden levels of choking in the playoffs to like the next <laughs> level. He's the boss of playoff choking, but no, it's all Giannis' fault. Yeah, I totally agreed there. And James Gonzalez thinks that um, the NBA should have a schedule like what the MLB did, where you only play teams in your conference. Definitely think that's a great idea and it minimizes um, you know, the amount of travel that's necessary between these different teams. Um, and Steven has a response to you. And he said, LeBron had made the finals by this time in his career. Yes, he had, but uh, still don't think that 
you know, that invalidates the fact that LeBron was the GOAT back then or was the, was the best player in the world back then, just like I don't think it's Giannis not making the playoffs um, invalid or not making the uh, finals invalidates the point that he's the best player in the world right now. Also, ahead, Steven, guys. keep in mind, we're not saying Giannis during this point in his career is better or even comparable to LeBron when he was at his prime or at this stage in his career. We're saying that he's the best player in the world. That doesn't mean we're saying, oh, Giannis is LeBron when he was in his mid-20s. No, that's not what we're saying. We're just saying he, as a, what is he, 26 years old? We're saying Giannis as a 26-year-old is better than LeBron James as a 36 or 35-year-old. That's all we're saying. We're not saying that he's better than LeBron James ever was. So say, so bringing up these points like, oh, Le, well, LeBron didn't do this when he was younger, or, or LeBron made a finals at that point when he was younger, it, it, it's completely irrelevant because we're not trying to make the argument that Giannis was better than LeBron James at this point in their careers. We're saying at this point in time, that is it. Absolutely agreed. And, and I know that Steven and I have had this conversation before, and we will have this conversation again. So I think it's best to move on to new topics here. Um, just before we do, want to uh, want to go over the results of our polling question. 83% of people say that the Niners will not make the playoffs this year. Isaiah, we'll go to you quickly before we move on. Yeah, I just want to respond to James Gonzalez's comment where he says uh, the NBA has to have a schedule where it's like what MLB did, where you only play your conference. Unfortunately, James, with how the NBA, the 72-game schedule right now is set up, with that many games, I think the NBA is uh, trying for like teams to travel from the West Coast to East Coast and vice versa. I think that's why they have that many games uh, scheduled right now but and I think that's a terrible idea because you know with how the NFL is right now with them traveling back and forth from the west coast to the east coast and vice versa you're already seeing a lot of COVID cases popping up in various organizations I think you're going to see a lot more uh, if the NBA decides to do the same thing as the NFL and travel back and forth from the west coast to the east coast and east coast to the west so I, I don't like the idea I think that they should do a 60-game schedule, which would benefit the players. And also, it would help you uh, minimize the chances that you get of getting the coronavirus by just having teams uh, in the West play the West teams, the East Coast teams play the East teams. And then, we'll, we'll, and then like, those teams can, you know, play each other. Like, the West Coast and the East can play each other uh, in the NBA Finals. Yeah, I definitely agreed with that. And, and I agree with your concerns about COVID, you know, from another aspect as well, where they're allowing limited fans into these NBA stadiums. And I know the NFL and college football and baseball, even in the, in the NLCS and the World Series, started doing that. But the difference between, you know, those stadiums and the NF and NBA stadiums is the NBA stadiums are, you know, indoors, they're smaller stadiums. So I just think that the risk of, you know, COVID spread or maybe more uncontrolled spread is higher in the NBA than it would be in those sports. And I think that the NBA as the first sport that came back, the first professional sport that came back, um, you know, when there was this whole situation in our country and did a great job in the bubble where they had zero positive tests and, you know, every team got to play all their games as scheduled. 
I think they did a great job, and I think that maybe they're getting a little bit um, more careless about it now uh, since they had done that great job in the past, like I said, um, in terms of in terms of mitigating the spread and, and actually playing their games. Um, but with that being said, let's move on to our next topic here. We are going to discuss some baseball. Um, and the big story of the day, uh, my Boston Red Sox, rehire their controversial ex-manager, Alex Cora. Um, obviously, you know, Alex Cora was involved in the whole Houston Astros cheating scandal, and the Red Sox had fired him, I think, uh, in 2019, uh, early 2019, only to rehire him now um, in November 2020. So I want to get your guys' thoughts on the uh, – I'm sorry, not the Celtics, but the Red Sox. Uh, you know, going after Alex Cora and getting him back, despite, you know, some of the implications that we saw in the whole cheating scandal uh, with the Astros. Trevor, I'm going to go to you first on this one. I'm thinking this is pretty a bold risk to take. Re rehiring somebody from a cheating scandal and you bring them back onto your team. Like, are you that desperate to hire someone that created that much of a, a a problem in the MLB and like just thinking of that with a team culture and what the Astros been through and what we've seen this baseball season where everyone was out to get them. So I don't think you kind of want to bring that into Boston. Boston's a winning city and you just don't want to bring any of that to that city and anything like that. Yeah, definitely agreed there. You know, I myself as a Red Sox fan can say that I am not a fan of the the hiring, you know, I know he took us to World Series and won uh, back in 2018 against the Dodgers. But, you know, I think that you fired him for a reason. Um, you know, you let him go for a reason. You let him go because he was implicated in the scandal. And, you know, just to me, it doesn't seem like a very good move to bring him back. It almost seems like, you know, you're going back on that action that you took, you know, a year and a half ago where you wanted to distance yourself from this whole scandal and now that you know you went through a few seasons where you're not winning very many games and you're not having much success and it doesn't look like you're a playoff team to bring somebody back maybe because he's brought you to the world series and won the world series before i understand it from you know an x's and o's perspective but just from you know a higher perspective it's not my favorite hire and, and i agree with you trevor um, you know, I don't want to bring someone like that back into the city of Boston, back into the Red Sox organization. I'm a, I'm confident as a Red Sox fan that even without Alex Cora, you know, we can get the pieces and we can get the coaching and we can get the players necessary to win. So I don't think this was a hundred percent necessary for them to bring him back. Yet they do, uh, much to my dismay. But I'm going to go to Ryan next. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this hire by the Red Sox? My thoughts are simply this. Boston is making it very, very, very easy for us to dislike them. They had the Patriots for a while and their multiple oh, cheating on. accusations. And now Boston you know Red Sox is hiring, hiring back a known cheater. This is just making it too easy for uh, sports cities like Cleveland, who haven't had the success of Boston, to make fun of them. Albeit not for losing, of course, because Boston is... They don't know what losing is, the uh, spo spoiled fan base, but I digress on that front. I'm 
really, this just shows that Boston is all about chasing the W. Nothing else matters but the W. You cheat, you do anything like that. As long as you cheat to get us wins and you don't get caught to where you get fired or have that win taken away, it doesn't matter. Boston just wants wins and they will do anything to get wins and that's that's pretty much it. That's my only takeaway. They want wins so they'll bring back a manager that got them a win and their hope is that that will happen again. So yeah. It's, it's as simple as that. They just want to win, and this hire is indicative of that. Yeah, and and I think Christy Wilson agrees with you. So does uh, James Gonzalez and Casey King. Um, they are all in agreement that this may not be the best hire. However, to your point around the Patriots and the Super Bowls and the cheating, I will completely disagree with that. <laughs> you know, the Patriots were targeted only because they were having so much success Plenty of other teams cheat all the time, yet it just gets swept under the rug and, and no one ever talks about it. But, you know, when, when you know, like 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 people say, hate us because they ain't us, right? So the rest well, of the league the has to have a reason to hate the Patriots. Um, you win and six this year, Super Bowls in 20 years, people are going to put you under a microscope. You can't make any mistakes. So even if... Your conspiracy theory that every other team in the league cheats just as much as the Patriots did over the last 20 years. Even if that's true, no one's going to care if the Browns do it. No one's going to care if the Bills do it. No one's going to care if any of these teams do it. So if you're under that big a microscope and you still cheat as often the Patriots did, I mean, for goodness sake, two years ago they got caught taping the Bengals sideline. Why would you tape the Bengals sideline of all teams? So I I'm just saying, maybe other teams do it, but... Um, don't 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 expect a, a microscope not to be placed on the uh, Boston franchise when that many championships are won. Because yes, our other fan base is a little salty. Yes, so we're gonna kind of we're gonna kind of reach for straws, so to speak, to uh, criticize Boston. So I'm just saying, don't do it with a microscope on you. Boston should know better at this point. Hey, cannot argue with that, but. I encourage you to check out this website and Ryan, I encourage you to check it out and, and all our viewers to check it out. If you think the Patriots are the biggest cheaters in the league, check out yourteamcheats.com. It is a database of all the different um, scandals, different teams have been caught up with in the league, um, in the NFL specifically around cheating. And actually you will be surprised that the Denver Broncos and New York Jets have by far the most number of incidents that they've cheated. Um, and despite that, those teams have had questionable, um, to put it lightly, success. So even if you are cheating, even if you are going that extra, you know, to get to get to where you need to go, you still have to bring it all together. Um, that's all I have to say about that. But again, yeah, I agreed that the Red Sox, they're doing anything they can to, to bring Alex Cora back because he brought them to the promised land and, and they're hoping he can do so again. And I also think that it's kind of, um, you know, they saw what happened with Terry Francona in Cleveland, right? Um, they let Terry Francona go. He went into Cleveland, made them an instant contender and made them a perennial playoff um, playoff team. You know, Cleveland's obviously had somewhat of a curse in the postseason, but Terry Francona has led them to be a very successful team 
uh, year in, year out being in the playoffs. And I think that they kind of saw something similar in Alex Cora where they didn't want to let another manager like that go, go elsewhere and, you know, make another team successful while here at home, you know, we've been bringing through, I think, four or five or six managers since Terry Francona left. So I think that's another reason why um, I'm sure you're familiar as an Indians fan. That's, that's probably another motivation behind the signing. I'm going to go to Isaiah on this. I know Isaiah had some, uh, you know, pretty strong thoughts on this. So Isaiah would love to hear them. Well, first of all, Shri, I got to completely agree with you when you say that all teams cheat, you know, and it's uh, swept under the rug. I mean, the Kansas City Chiefs cheated in the Super Bowl this past season. I mean, they they got away with blatant holding. There's a picture oh right there God. where on third and 15, Nick Bosa is held. He is blatantly <laughs> Wow. He's blatantly held, and the Chiefs defender is literally grabbing him by the jersey, preventing him from having a free shot at Patrick Mahomes as he's trying to deliver that pass on third and 15. But I'm not, you know, I'm not going to talk about the Super Bowl because if we were to talk about the Super Bowl, you know, I would probably be on here ranting for three hours. But personally, I hate this hire by the Boston Red Sox. I have been a very strong proponent that the Red Sox should absolutely not rehire Alex Cora and that I don't believe that Alex Cora should be given another chance in baseball for a very long time. This guy not only cheated once when he was, according to MLB's report, the mastermind behind the Astros cheating scandal when he was their bench coach, but when he came to Boston as the manager, he cheated two more times as well. The Red Sox got caught having an Apple watch in their dugout, which allegedly was used to decode signs, and they were docked $25,000, and then... After the Astros had their own, had their cheating scandal, the Red Sox had their own cheating scandal as well. Granted, it wasn't as big as the Astros, but still, it was still a cheating scandal, which baseball investigated. And then one of the guys uh, in the video room who was running that video room, he got fired because he was implicated in that report. It supposedly said in the report about the Red Sox cheating scandal that Alex Cora had nothing to do with the third scandal. But come on, guys. Do we really believe that this guy who is running the entire team has no knowledge of what's going on in the video room? Like, Please stop lying to the people. We're not foolish as you guys think. It's absolutely BS, man. This guy not only cheated once, not twice, but three times. I'm a firm believer that everybody should be given a second chance. But this guy has not only had a second chance, but he's also had a third chance as well. And he blew that too. And I get the fact that he did serve a one-year suspension, but what makes you think after cheating three times that he's not going to go back and do it again? So that's why I don't like this hire. The Red Sox organization, by making this hire, they are sending a strong and powerful message to the rest of the nation that they don't give a damn about cheating or taking a shortcut to get things done. 
as long as you win, they will be happy and satisfied. And I just think that's morally wrong and sad. Yeah, I agreed there. I think they're taking the easy way out. Um, you know, I think that they should be hiring somebody else. And, and as a Red Sox fan, I'm in complete agreement with all of you guys. Don't think it's a good look. Um, you know, and I think that this Red Sox and Boston are, are definitely capable of winning without bringing in Alex Cora. It may take a little bit longer, um, but, you know, what, what has to be done has to be done. And, and I don't like the move um, by the organization. But moving on here uh, to some college football. Um, so we've seen some great performances by some non-Power 5 schools so far this season. We've seen Cincinnati, you know, play very well and be ranked very highly. We've seen BYU play very well. We've seen uh, other teams like Coastal Carolina um, in the top 15 of the national rankings. So want to get your guys' thoughts on if this will be the season that we finally see uh, you know, a non-Power 5 team get into the playoffs and compete for a championship. Of course, the first time a non-Power 5 team would win the championship since 2017 and those UCF uh, nights. I'm going to go to Ryan first for his thoughts on this topic. <laughs> yeah, I can't um, wait I'm to not going to touch the uh, UCF topic <laughs> because that brings me much anger and rage. So I'm just going to just going to move past that. But um, in terms of if a non-Power 5 team will make the playoffs, no. It won't happen. And it, and it won't happen for this very simple reason. A one-loss Big Ten champ gets in. A one-loss Big 12 champ gets in. Or even a two-loss Big 12 champ will get in over a non-Power 5 team. And I know what Isaiah's going to say. He's going to say, well, BYU should make it. Um... Let's look at who BYU is going to play this year. A Navy team that's not doing well overall. Troy. LA Tech. UTSA. Oh, which they only beat by seven points. Great quality win there. Uh, a Houston team that's down. Texas State. Ooh. Western Kentucky. My goodness. These are some absolute challenges. Uh... Let's see, Boise State, the always overrated Boise State. I don't care if they're ranked. They're going to lose two games this year, as they always do. But then they have the powerhouse coming up the week after that, North Alabama. Alabama's in the name, so they must be good. And then San Diego State. My goodness, what a matchup. What a absolute college powerhouse in terms of football. I mean, I'm sorry. You want to make the college football playoffs schedule maybe oh i don't know one team maybe one good team just maybe one cincinnati's the only one that could have an outside shot but there would have to be multiple and i mean multiple two or three lost college football power five champions for that to happen it's the the deck the deck ah, the deck is stacked against non-power five teams unless they play just like two or three high tier power five teams in the uh non-conference schedule it's just it's so difficult it won't happen this year and i don't think it ever will happen because the mayhem for that to transpire is absolute insanity so yeah there's absolutely no way a team not in the power five makes it this year and 
it is especially not going to be BYU. They go undefeated. They have nothing. Their schedule offers nothing. No, ah, nothing. So I don't care that BYU is beating high school teams right now and they go undefeated. It doesn't matter. They play no one and you shouldn't get into the playoffs if you face no one. If BYU makes it this year, they set the precedence. Schedule week. Schedule high school teams in the uh, non-conference schedule. Because at that point, playing harder teams is just a disadvantage. I mean, that point's already been proven with the SEC and how they schedule um, just weak opponents out of conference and only have eight conference games. So the SEC's already proven this point. But if BYU were to make the playoffs, every team should cancel all their non-conference Power 5 opponents and just schedule Liberty like Alabama does because it would just send the wrong message to every college football program. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of agree. You know, BYU has definitely has a weak schedule. Um, however, I do think that Cincinnati, being in the American Conference, is not necessarily as bad of a conference as you know, uh, or they don't play as bad teams as BYU has been playing. Um, and also, I don't really fault BYU for not scheduling tough games because this season with the COVID restrictions, it's very difficult because scheduling an SEC game or a Big Ten game um, or a Pac-12 game is essentially impossible for these teams. So I think that BYU had very limited options on who they could schedule, but that doesn't mean that they should make the playoffs for playing that type of a schedule um, that you discussed. So I'm not going to hold it against BYU to say that, you know, they're scheduling high school teams and they're doing that on purpose. But, you know, the situation being how it is, if you play high school teams, you should not be able to get into the playoffs. I totally agree with you on that. Um, next, we're going to go to Isaiah. Isaiah, I think, has a different take on this. Um, let's hear what you have to say, Isaiah. Well, Kellen, I hope that you are tuning in, my friend, because I'm about to do some unleashing here, bud. So I know, I know the popular opinion right now is that, oh, BYU – uh, they played a lot of garbage teams, blah, blah, blah. They Which they teams. have. Yes, that's true. But they've beaten, like, they've beaten a lot of garbage teams. They've beaten them by 40-plus, but that doesn't mean anything. But, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, yes, sir, BYU absolutely deserves to be in the playoffs if they go 12-0. and Or, like, are they going to go 12-0? Or, no, 10-0. and yeah, they they go ten and zero. They finish the season undefeated, and they like they continue their course right now, where they are beating opponents by thirty to forty plus points. You have to put BYU into the playoffs, and the reason being is I'm tired. I am tired of all these non-power five schools that go undefeated and get left out just because oh we gotta put in the the one loss sec team or the one loss big 10 team because they give you more revenue i'm all about results it's about what have you done for me lately byu undefeated zero losses versus a team that won loss it is so obvious byu needs to go to the playoffs it's time we stop this pathetic nonsense that we have been doing in, in college football the last four or five years and finally give a non-power five team 
uh, what they've been due for the last four or five years and put them in the playoffs, and let's see how they do. I mean, their quarterback, Zach Wilson, he's a stud. I watched this guy play last year against USC, and this guy was doing things that I've never seen before in my life. Like, he took a snap from under center. You had three USC defenders come chase him. He runs back 30 yards and just fires a pass downfield, and it's a touchdown for BYU. I mean, this guy is a phenomenal quarterback. I've been on his bandwagon since day one. He's a great player. He's going to be a stud in the NFL. He's going to get you a lot of um, revenue in the college football playoff. But it's time that we stop disrespecting the non-power five and give them their due credit. Wow. Quite a rant there from Isaiah. I'm going to give Ryan a second to respond. Okay, okay, Isaiah. So I'm going to summarize your point with a bit of an analogy. Okay, so say there's two friends in a basketball gym, and a third person comes up and says, hey, which one of you two is the better basketball player? So one of them takes 10 just open layups and makes all 10. And then the other guy goes to half court and makes 8 out of 10 half court shots. So by your logic, the person that made 10 layups is more impressive and is a better basketball player based solely on that act than the person that drains eight out of ten half-court shot or, stir or step curry range shots. That's what you're saying, Isaiah. Because apparently, it's all that matters is that you win all ten games. It doesn't matter if you had basically ten free layups versus games against actual teams. It's all about results. Even those, even though those results are against easy teams. And like Shree said, it's not their fault. I'm not saying they're intentionally playing just bad teams. But the results are the results. And they're shooting 10 layups while other teams are shooting Steph Curry range threes and draining them at like an 8 out of 10 clip. And you're saying, oh, the guy's shooting the layups. He's, he's obviously better. It makes no sense, Isaiah. So... Tell me if I'm wrong, Isaiah. Is that analogy not accurate? Well, first first of all, Ryan, you need to look at BYU's schedule. They Navy. Oh, Navy I did. I trust me. I just did. I just yeah. did. I'm looking at their schedule right now. First of all, how dare you disrespect Boise State? Have you seen on uh, – it was one of the articles that I read. Ooh, about they have the blue top, turf. I'm the, so impressed. The toughest – environments to play in all of college football. Oh, you know what was number turf. one? I don't know how you, you can know get what around was number that. One? Do you know what was number one on that list? Tough, toughest environments to play in all of college football. You know what number one was? Is it is it be is it uh Boise State with their stupid blue turf? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Because they yes, they sir. face bad Boise teams. Boise State blue turf. Boise <laughs> Boise's not a shoe-in game. They're ranked number 20 right now. They play on the blue turf. They're wearing their blue uniforms. You practically can't see their players because it's camouflage. Camouflage mode. They, you do realize that. Like, I see what? Yes. You do realize that Boise has been consistently a top 20 
top 25 program the last 10 years in all of college football. They are a good team. They even went to the Fiesta Bowl a couple of years back and beat Oklahoma. They beat TCU. So it's, let's not act like Boise is, is a scrub. Boise is a pretty good ball club. They have a good offense, pretty good defense. It's not their fault they play in the Mountain West. And you look at San Diego State. Yeah, San Diego State, they're not what they once was. But, hey, they them and BYU always play tough games. So, like, I listen, I get the fact that it's not the greatest schedule in the world, but it's time that we stop disrespecting the non-Power 5 schools. If you go undefeated, you should get the credit that you deserve and make the college football playoff. That's why I've been advocating for years. We need a six-team playoff. We need a six-team playoff where you have the Power 5 get all, like the champion from the Power 5 all get in, and then you have a non-Power 5 uh, champ or the best team in the non-Power 5 get in. So we don't have this debate about UCF. We don't have this debate about BYU. Yeah, hey, well, and Isaiah guys. brings up a good point. Why should UCF be undefeated and win a national championship versus teams like BYU not do that? I'm, I'm not getting into that topic, but uh, guys, I, I know you're having trouble seeing me because – my walls are white and I'm wearing a white t-shirt. I know I'm basically <laughs> camouflaged right now. You can't see me, but trust me, guys. I am on the screen. My screen is on. You aren't just seeing a blank room. You can see me. I'm a person sitting in this room. Even though I have a white t-shirt on, I know, according to Isaiah, that I'm basically camouflaged and you shouldn't be able to see me. But guess what, Isaiah? Just because colors slightly match doesn't mean the person's invisible. I'm pretty sure the players, when they're on the field, can see who has the ball and can see the other players. It's a tough environment because they're a decent team that goes against bad teams most of the time. That's the reason their environment is tough. That's the reason they have a, such a good home winning record is because they would be a bad Power 5 team, but they're going up against terrible teams, so they obviously win most of those games. That's all that is. It's not... It's not camouflage like like you insinuated is. <laughs> didn't, didn't they beat Florida State a couple of years back? Am I wrong on that? Didn't oh, they Florida, Florida State. State. Oh, because they're such a powerhouse program nowadays, <laughs> and they were not great back then too. I mean, agreed though. Like they haven't they haven't done what it takes to be one of the four best teams in the country. I think we can all agree on that. But I think we can all also agree that it would be fun to see them have a shot at the playoff. It would be fun to see a playoff expansion and bringing those Breath teams like BYU air. and Cincinnati and maybe even a Coastal Carolina into the playoff and seeing if they could com compete with the big boys. I'm with you, Ryan. I don't think they can, but it would be a great Cinderella story. Um, you know, we always see those in basketball, right? It's a one-game one season. We see those Loyola Chicago's. We see that Florida Gulf Coast University. We see these teams compete against good teams and win again and again and again. What's to say that that doesn't happen in college football? Um, so I'm definitely in agreement that maybe they shouldn't make the playoffs under the current system, but I also think that expanding the playoffs is not a bad idea. Um, with that being said, please go ahead and vote in our uh, poll. Does a non-Power 5 team make the playoffs? Please vote and comment your thoughts down below. Uh, Trevor, we're going to go to you. What do you think about, you know, the non-Power 5 teams, maybe Cincinnati, maybe a BYU, and their chances of making the playoffs this season with all the chaos we've seen in the Big 12 and the limited Pac-12 season that 
um, we're going to see with only six games. For me personally, what I'm seeing and looking at the top three teams in the nation, obviously I'm looking at Notre Dame. Notre Dame is the biggest factor in either in either allowing a, a non-Power 5 to get in or preventing them from even getting in. So if we look at this, they're playing Clemson this weekend. And if they would, if they shall lose, they have one loss in the ACC. At this point in time, the ACC is not broken up into a more of a division aspect since everyone is like playing everybody to get the spot between the two top teams. So it's possible for Notre Dame to remain on the as a second place team going in to the ACC championship game against an undefeated Clemson. If they shall lose in that championship game and Cincinnati goes undefeated as a conference champion, I think the committee would sit down and vouch for Cincinnati to be springboard over Notre Dame into that fourth spot. But that also depends on what the Big Ten championship game looks like. But if the remaining teams in the top three go undefeated, I think you can argue that Cincinnati could slip into the fourth spot being an undefeated team. And they just have to win out all their games. That's all they have to do and just hope Notre Dame gets is it becomes a two-loss team and they'd be golden from that point forward. So I think personally, I will believe a non-Power 5 team can slip into the playoffs this year based on the mayhem that we've seen. And plus with COVID cases and being players being out, for instance, like Trevor Lawrence, out for two weeks. So if Notre Dame has that same issue with one of their star players in the next coming weeks, you could see something drastically unravel in the college football playoff picture. So it's very likely that a non-Power 5 team can slip in in that sense. Yeah, definitely agreed. If there's any year where, you know, a non-Power 5 team makes it into that four-team playoff, I think it's this season with all the chaos that we're seeing. And plus, you know, the Pac-12, they're only playing six games. What happens if the Pac-12 champion only plays a five-game regular season? Do you put a five win Pac-12 champion in or do you put a non-Power 5 team maybe like Cincinnati that's consistently won all its games and not just one blown out teams and more so than BYU they played better competition they played a Memphis team that people thought you know coming into the season was pretty good and they play in that American comp American conference which while they don't have the best teams I don't think they're too far below the ACC or the Big 12 in terms of uh level of talent. They don't have that Clemson. They don't have that Oklahoma that the Big 12 has had in previous years. But I think that majority of their teams would be comparable to mid-tier teams in maybe the ACC or the Big 12. So definitely think that Cincinnati um, would be my pick among the Power 5 teams to, or non-Power 5 teams to make some noise. Uh, so with that being said, let's move on to our next segment here. We are going to, we are all so excited to see the return of Pac-12 football it seems like a long time since it's been gone. You know, I know me personally, uh, I stay up and, and watch those 10.30 p.m. kickoffs and, and excited to continue to do that on Saturday nights. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts of uh, parts about college football Saturdays, you know, uh, going, slipping into bed and, and sitting there and watching these late kickoff games and, and watching these competitive contests between these West Coast teams. So super excited that the Pac-12 is back. And I know that, you know, some of our viewers are as well. Casey King can't wait for the Pac-12 to begin tomorrow. Uh, fight on. Uh, Christy Wilson, go USC. So, you know, I know our fans are excited for us to talk about the Pac-12. So 
let's get this started with the Pac-12 preview. First off, I'm uh, going to start with your picks on who you think will win the Pac-12. I'm going to go to Isaiah first on this. Isaiah, who is the Pac-12 champion in your eyes? Well, I think that this conference is a two-team race between USC and Oregon. Um, I know you have, like, Arizona State, uh, but they did lose uh, their top wide receiver, Brandon Ayuk. Um, Arizona, under Kevin Sumlin, has just not worked out. Um, you do have Washington State with Nick Rolovich, who I am very excited uh, to see coach in the Pac-12 because he was the coach of my Hawaii Rainbow Warriors, and he did a fantastic job revitalizing the Hawaii football team. And they've got a great quarterback in Jaden Delora. Um, also, you have Utah, but Utah lost a lot of talent. Washington, they lost a lot of talent as well. They also have a new head coach in Jimmy Lake. Um, so I think it's going to come down to USC and Oregon, and I got to give the upper hand right now to USC, and the reason being is that you have a great quarterback in Keaton Slovis, who um, I think will be the number one pick in a couple of years when he comes out for the NFL draft, and a lot of people are now finally catching up to what I've been saying for a long time, and also, USC, they returned uh, a lot of the running uh, – they returned majority of the running backs that they had last year. If you guys remember, Marquis Stepp, uh, Polamau, they were all like – they all were really good when they were on the field, but like they were out like for majority of the season. So now they're back. The wide receiving core, they lost Michael Pittman. But they, you know, reloaded with uh, Brew McCoy, who was a top – or he was a five-star recruit. Uh, they do have um, – I'm, I'm forgetting the other guy's name, but uh, – damn it, brain fart. But hopefully I can get the guy's name back. But he was really good. Offensive line, I know they lost Austin Jackson, but they still have a good incoming – recruiting class of offensive linemen coming in their offense is going to be prolific next season they were already really good but you know another year in Grandham Harold's air raid system they're going to be prolific the defense was the one that set them back last season and I think their defense honestly will get will get better because you know they they fired Clancy Pendergast uh, who was their defensive coordinator last year. And he was a guy that was just there, like just to, for the X's and O's, didn't really want to go out there, give any effort and recruit. And, you know, he wasn't really like, he didn't bring any energy to the table. They swap him out for former Texas defensive coordinator, Todd Orlando, who is a fiery guy. I mean, this guy, everywhere he goes, he's bringing energy and lots and lots of energy. So I think that energy would rub off on the defense. They do have a lot of good defensive pieces coming back from injury, which I think will really help USC's defense. Um, I just think, you know, like USC is just way too talented. And, you know, I know a lot of you guys are going to be like Isaiah, but they have Clay Helton as their head coach, a guy that you hate and want to get rid of for a long, long time. Uh, and he's going to set them back. But I think they're just going to win in spite of Clay Helton. I mean, USC has shown in the past that they can win in spite of Clay Helton's flaws as a head coach. Like they did that uh, with Sam Darnold when he was there. And I think that Keaton Slovis right now is on the same level as Sam Darnold was as, at USC or maybe even better than what Sam Darnold was at, at USC. So I think they're going to win uh, the Pac-12 in spite of uh, having Clay Helton as head coach. And, you know, Oregon, 
as much as I love the Ducks, they have a great defense. Uh, their offensive line is really good. Wide receivers, they did lose a couple of wide receivers. Uh, running backs, they did lose a couple of running backs as well. Uh, but the main issue is quarterback. And if you're going to ask me to compare Keaton Slovis over the guy that they have right now, uh, who I don't think has even – or. Like I don't, yeah, I don't think he's even started a college game in his career. I got to give the upper hand to Keaton Slovis, so that's why I got to go with USC. Yeah, Isaiah, definitely agree with you that Keaton Slovis is one of the best quarterbacks in the nation right now. And if USC is to win, they're going to have to, you know, rely on him more and more. Um, and I think some of our viewers here agree. Uh, with you on your prediction of USC. Casey King says uh, USC is going to win a close nail-biter versus uh, Oregon in the Pac-12 championship. And if they don't win, he agrees with you that Clay Helton should be out of here. Uh, there's no reason for them to underperform. Uh, the talent is there, and they're a deep team. Shardol Gupta says that Arizona State, the Sun Devils, are going to beat the USC Trojans. Um I'm not so sure about that, but I do. I am high on the Sun Devils. I think that they're one of the teams to watch out for. Um, Ryan, I'm going to go to you next. Do you agree with Isaiah that USC is the team to beat this year, or, or do you have a different team uh, as your Pac-12 champion? Yeah, it's not going to be USC. Sorry to uh, spoil my prediction early, but this is going to be my last topic. I have to go soon, but I have to give a few predictions. And Isaiah, I'm just going to say this right now. You are not going to like this. If I think I have a sneaking suspicion, I might be right about a couple of these things. Number one, USC will will uh, will not only not win the Pac-12, they won't even win their division. That will be Arizona State. I know you compare the quarterbacks, and yes, when it comes to quarterbacks, it's not even close. It's USC has a clear advantage. But I'm, I compare head coaches, and one side has a much better head coach than the other side. And plus, Arizona State is just a team on the uprise, and I think that in a crazy year like this, they're going to take it because they have the better coach, and he will guide them through this. So Arizona in that division, and then the other one, it'll be Oregon because they have a great defense, great run game, and... In this crazy year, I'm just going to take the safe bets and go with the team with the best defense and the best uh, run game in that division. And then for the winner of the division, it'll be Oregon for the same reasons I listed. Just It's the safe pick, and uh, in a crazy year like this, going with the best team that has a proven commodity in the defense and the run game, that's definitely the, or definitely the team to go with. But this is the prediction... You are not going to like Isaiah. I believe USC is going to have a bad year. How many games do they play? Seven games? I think six, I think, plus, uh, six plus the championship. Okay, six plus a championship. Okay, so I predict USC goes four and two. And I think in those two games they lose, they're going to lose ugly. And then at that point... Patience will run out, and I think Clay Helton will be fired. I'm going to call it now. I think he gets fired after this year. But this this does not have a happy ending for you, Isaiah. Oh, no, quite the opposite. I predict Clay Helton gets fired, and then I predict one Adam Gates gets fired as the head coach of the New York Jets. I'm done. 
And then there's an opening at USC with Adam Gates, who just recently got fired. So my prediction, and I'm going to call it now, is that Adam Gates, by this time next year, will be the head coach of USC. I'm calling it now. If no, if for no other reason, then it would bring Isaiah much sadness and much misery. So I, I'm calling it right now. I, I could be wrong. Although, if I'm wrong, it will probably be because the Jets don't fire him. But if Adam Gates is available and USC has an opening, it's a match made in heaven. So I'm sorry, Isaiah, but I just have this gut feeling that that's going to happen. And... Uh, I, I fingers crossed that happens because it would be so funny to watch Isaiah just have a complete meltdown if that were to happen. So, uh, kind of fingers crossed for that one. Definitely a bold prediction there, Ryan. Uh, although I don't know if Isaiah would have a meltdown. He's been publicly he's publicly stated that he wishes the 49ers had hired Adam Gase because he said that Adam Gase would have led them to a Super Bowl win. Uh, over rather than Jim Tom Sula, who, who you know, destroyed the franchise. So maybe Isaiah might might be happy with that hire, uh, more so than than disappointed or having a meltdown. Callan McClurg, thanks for tuning in, Callan. Uh, he says he doesn't understand the pack, the logic between the 9 a.m. kickoffs and the Pac-12. I don't I don't understand that either. I didn't personally know that they were having 9 a.m. kickoffs, but maybe that's because I'm on the East Coast and it's 12 p.m. here, so it seems normal to us. Uh, but to y'all, I understand why that would make absolutely no sense. And now that I look at it, I think that Arizona State-USC game that Chardol thinks Arizona State will win um, is at 9 a.m. So I think that might play an impact in the game. And and I definitely see, Ryan, where you're coming from. I'm a big believer in Arizona State as well, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, Casey King says, Hell no. Adam Gase will not be at USC next year if Clay gets fired. And then he also agrees with Callen uh, that the early morning start in L.A. is BS. Uh, it'll be 10 a.m. in his time. And agreed that's way too early on a Saturday morning um, to start. And James Gonzalez says 9 a.m. start is testing if East Coast viewers will actually watch the USC games. Now, I know that there's been a lot of criticism about you know, late games in the Pac-12 and maybe some players not getting their due, um, due, due share of votes, I guess, for the Heisman or for other awards because they play so late at night and a lot of the uh, media on the East Coast uh, does not stay up to watch those games. I personally do, but I agreed with uh, James that they may be testing to see if they get more viewership on the East Coast should they move the time to that 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern uh, time slot. Trevor, I'm going to go with you. Do you agree with Isaiah uh, on USC? Do you agree with uh, Ryan on his Oregon pick, or are you going to go with another team here to win the Pac-12? I personally am going to go with Oregon based off some stuff from last year. Watching them play the Auburn game last year in their fast-tempo offense if they're able to manage that in the early stages of this season, I think Oregon will be able to dominate this conference without any issues along this way. Though in the early parts of the game, there's going to be hiccups and sloppy play, but they come up, you know, playing and firing all their cylinders, making everything clean and crisp and running that high tempo offense. 
no team's going to be able to compete with them because it's just so lightning fast. They get down the field and score in a heartbeat or either elongate a drive and literally burn like nine minutes off the clock if they wanted to. There's such more of a team that can control the clock and respond so rapidly that your offense just got to get back on the field to try to put some distance in the scoring. And I think just Oregon alone just has that power to just control their destiny in the Pac-12 this year. Agreed. And I know they have a very strong defense. I think is one of the top five defenses coming into the season. Um, and they have a very good offensive line with um, Pinay Sewell. Sewell, I might be mispronouncing his name, but he's projected as a consensus top five pick. So they definitely have a very strong offensive and defensive line over there at Oregon. And, and that's kind of what you need to control the game, especially in a year where you lose someone like Justin Herbert who we've seen have so much success um, in in the NFL. And Isaiah here thinks that Keaton Slovis uh, should win the Heisman. He says Keaton Slovis for Heisman. Disagree with that, Isaiah. I think he would be pretty far down that list of, of potential Heisman winners. Um, but we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, Shree? Go ahead, Isaiah. I got something to add about the, um, the Pac-12 starting on the East Coast. I think it would help – the Pac-12 starting on the East Coast will really help the Heisman candidacy of Keaton Slovis because with them starting at 9 a.m., I believe, is it 9 a.m., 9.30 or something like that, then that East Coast viewers will tune in. And if Keaton Slovis, let's say tomorrow, balls out, throws for like 400 yards, four touchdowns, no picks, then they will see what this kid is truly about. And these games are really going to give like the Keaton Slovises of the world, the Jaden Daniels of the world, um, the Tyler Blows of the world. I, mean, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Oregon quarterback, Jaden Dolores of the world. They will keep give these guys – their uh, recognition that they deserve. So I think like, you know, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, pros and cons about it, but one of the big pros about starting at 9 a.m. and being on the big noon kickoff is that these guys that, you know, a lot of people that don't really follow the Pac-12 closely that they don't know about, they will get a lot of recognition. Yeah, definitely a very key week for the Pac-12 this week because, you know, it's the first week they're starting with the big noon kickoff in that Arizona State versus USC game at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, and then capping on Saturday Night Football uh, with Kirk Herbstreet um, calling that game, and that's going to kick off at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific, and that's going to be between Oregon and Stanford. So we're definitely going to see get to see some great uh, matchups both in the Pac-12 South as well as the Pac-12 North um, in this opening week week of Pac-12 action. Um, to go back to our poll around a non-Power 5 team making the CFP, 75% of respondents have a non-Power 5. I think I think that means he meant to write a non-Power 5 team making the college football playoff this year. That is definitely a surprising result. Did not think that 75% of people would have a non-Power 5 team making the college football playoff, but that is apparently what our viewers think today. Um, and Shardo Gupta says that he thinks that Arizona State will win the Pac-12 championship game. I'm not going to go that far, but my predictions personally for the uh, Pac-12 are Arizona State is going to win the Pac-12 South, Oregon is going to win the Pac-12 North, and they're going to face off in the Pac-12 championship. And like Ryan I, and Trevor, I have Oregon winning that matchup. 
I just think that, you know, Arizona State has had plenty of talent come through over the past few years. We saw what Jaden Daniels could do last year in that game against Oregon. I stayed up and watched that game, and he really, really impressed me. We've seen the type of receivers Herm Edwards has had through Arizona State with Nikhil Harry, followed by Brendan Ayuk. I'm sure that it's going to be the next man up this year. Um, I see this game tomorrow. First game of the day, 9 a.m., first game of the season for both of these teams. I think that decides the Pac-12 South, and I'm going to pick Arizona State in that game to beat USC. Ryan, let's get your last thoughts on uh, on this topic. Well, my thoughts are I just completely agree that Arizona State's going to win, as I stated earlier. But I just mainly wanted to speak to uh, – just sign off real quick. I got to go. But uh, I just wanted to uh, say before I left, thank you, Isaiah and Trevor, for having me on your show and a uh, great job moderating by Shree, filling in, did a fantastic job. Steven, better watch out. He's coming for your job as moderator on some <laughs> of our shows. But uh, just uh, thank you, guys. It was great being on. And uh, hopefully I can uh, get back on our shows a little more regularly. But uh, had a great time. And uh, I know you guys will finish the show out strong. And uh, best of luck. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate you joining us today. Uh, have a great night and have a good weekend. Can't wait to talk some football with you throughout the weekend. Oh, see I you can't on wait fan either. response. I'll see you guys. What see you on fan response, Brian. Oh yeah, see you on fan response, and I'll catch you guys next week. See ya. See ya. See you later, Ryan. So, with that being said, we are going to move on to our next topic here. Uh, we are actually going to go to our pickums for this week. Let's get your thoughts, Isaiah, around the Clemson-Notre Dame game. Uh, for ooh, This is going to be, I believe, the this is going to be the game of the weekend. Um, this is a game that I think will determine who wins the ACC. And, you know, if Notre Dame wins uh, this game, then – all hell is going to break loose when it comes to the college football playoff. Uh, listen, it's at Notre Dame. Clemson is missing Trevor Lawrence. They aren't uh, – yeah, they're missing Trevor Lawrence. Uh, their backup quarterback, I don't know – I don't really know his name, but he's going to be going into a hostile DJ, environment. Wait, what? DJ Yui Ungalele. Yeah, DJ Yui Ungalele is going to be – uh, going into a hostile environment, first start uh, there in a hostile environment. It's not like you're playing in Clemson like he did last week. So I think that he could struggle in that game. Um, and, you know, Notre Dame, they have a very good defense. They could definitely hold Clemson's offense down. Um, and I just think, you know, the the with Trevor Lawrence just not being there, I think that's going to be a – big part as to why um, Clemson loses this game. I just, it's the, the quarterback matchup between Ian Book and DJ Ogawele is just unfair, man. Um, obviously I'm going to pick Ian Book. I'm going to go with the fighting Irish to shake up the college football playoff landscape and shock Clemson and win this game. And most likely uh, if they win, I believe, Shri, correct me if I'm wrong, if Clemson or if Notre Dame wins, is Notre Dame going to take, uh, control of their division? Yes, they will. It will be the ACC is all in one division this year. So it's just the two best teams that face off. And if, if Notre Dame wins this weekend, they are, you know, bar any unforeseen losses for the rest of the schedule, they're going to be right there at number one in the ACC. 
Yeah, I'm going to go with Notre Dame because no Trevor Lawrence, hostile environment for the young kid. I don't think he will do that well in that game. And I got Notre Dame being just coming out more hungry. Like they're not obviously they're going to come out more fired up because they're at home and, you know, they really want to win this game. Yeah, and I think Chardol agrees with you. He's picking Notre Dame. Christy Wilson, on the other hand, is going to go with DJ Yui Ungalele uh, in the second start, and he's going to she's going to pick Clemson to beat Notre Dame. Trevor, I uh, want to get your thoughts on this game. Are you picking Clemson, or are you going to go with the Fighting Irish this weekend? Looking at this team, it's really hard to pick this game. And I'm looking at, at the ESPN matchup predictor. They have Clemson with almost a 66% chance of winning this game. I, for one, am a little bit skeptical with that percentage. After watching Clemson play Boston College and almost losing that game without Trevor Lawrence. So it makes me wonder, is Clemson for real without Trevor Lawrence? Or is Trevor Lawrence the, literally the only thing that keeps his team as a playoff contention team. So I'm thinking that Notre Dame will be able to step up and play, but they've been so rocky in their season. It's like, you know, you got to lean towards Clemson in that sense because Clemson has been consistent besides the spook that they had almost with Syracuse, but they were able to control in the driver's seat. And then they had Boston College with their backup quarterback, though it was his, like his first game. And they, he almost choked it away. But I think Notre Dame will find their bits and pieces because they know that they can't afford this loss right here and be able to take care of Clemson and make sure they don't have to face Clemson in the college football playoffs ever again if they beat them in the ACC championship game. So I think they're going to come out willing to fight and able to take it to Clemson and make it an interesting ACC division to watch. Yeah, and it looks like Casey King agrees with you. He says, unfortunately, Notre Dame wins it since they're at home and no Trevor Lawrence in this game, but hoping Clemson pulls it off. Um, I I am hoping that Notre Dame pulls it off. You know, I'm not a big Clemson fan. I know Trevor, uh, as Ohio State fans, we've had some, uh, some questionable history with the Clemson Tigers. So um, I'm going to pick Notre Dame, but I'm not going to pick Notre Dame because of Trevor Lawrence. I think Yui Ungalele has played, come in for Trevor Lawrence and played, you know, just as well as Trevor Lawrence has this year. Um, I don't think Trevor Lawrence was having that great of a season. We saw him, you know, have some struggles against teams like Syracuse. We saw him, um, you know, throw some interceptions early on in the season. And I'm not saying that Trevor Lawrence, you know, doesn't make a difference. He definitely does. And I think he's definitely an upgrade over DJ. Uh, but I don't see them losing much of a step because of DJ. Um, I think that Travis Etienne being in the backfield and, uh, with those receivers they have, I think their offense will be fine. What really, really concerns me is their defense. Um, we saw Boston College's receivers just get so much separation against these Clemson corners. Uh, in the first half, BC was able to do whatever they wanted, put up 28 points. Of course, in the second half, uh, you know, Brett Venables came out and, and shut down the Boston College offense and, and you know, kind of turned the game around and, and completed this huge comeback, um, you know, at home. But I don't think Notre Dame is Boston College. I think Notre Dame has a much better offensive line than Boston College has. I think Notre Dame has a much better run game than Boston College has. Ian Book um, is also a great quarterback. And although he's not made too much noise this season, I think that he's definitely capable of, you know, winning when it matters most. 
So I'm going to go with um, Notre Dame, but not because of Trevor Lawrence, not because of the Clemson offense, but because of that Clemson defense and the struggles that we saw them have last week. Um, I think that Clemson too often gets into these close games against inferior ACC opponents and they're able to ultimately pull it off because they're playing a BC, because they're playing a Syracuse, because they're playing in North Carolina. But Notre Dame isn't an, isn't an ACC team. They're not, you know, a Syracuse in North Carolina or, um, you know, a BC. They're actually a very talented group, a very well-coached group and a very disciplined group. And I think at home they pull it off against Clemson, um, who I think has another off week on the defensive side of the ball. So going on to our next uh, set of picks here. It is the world's largest cocktail party. I think that's what they call it between Florida Gators and the Georgia Bulldogs uh, over in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Trevor, I'm going to go to you for your thoughts on this game first. Obviously, you know, Georgia, we've seen them have their struggles offensively, but have a stellar defense. Um, and Florida, kind of the opposite. You know, we've seen their defense kind of have some struggles at some points. Uh, in this season, but Kyle Trask and Kyle Pitts and this offense is rolling on all cylinders. Uh, who do you have winning this game this weekend between the Gators and the Dogs? Give me the Gators. Let's go, baby. Gators all day. The reason why is because Georgia stunk so bad in the Kentucky game. They only dropped 14 points. You are supposed to be a playoff caliber team, and you only dropped 14 points on Kentucky. You should at least drop 35 points on them. Make a statement, or at least 42, because that's what Alabama would do, and same with Florida. So if you're not able to do that, you don't belong in the college football playoff picture, and you don't belong in the SEC championship game. And I think Florida will be – they were my pick to win, I think, the SEC East, I want to believe. Is it East or West? I forget. It's the East. The East. And they're going to go to the SEC championship game and probably face Bama, and it's going to be one thrilling of a match to watch. So I'm going to go with Florida on this game. Yeah, and looks like some of our viewers agree with you too. Christy Wilson and Shardul Gupta both picking Florida in this matchup. Isaiah, I know you may have some differences here. Um, are you going to roll with your dogs, or do you think Florida's offense is too much for that defense? You guys might be about to witness some history here on the MI6 Sports Network. Um, this is a really hard decision. Uh, I've been, you know, wrestling with it for the past couple of days since it was announced that we were going to pick this game. Give me the Gators. Give me the Gators. Wow. I never thought that I would I, see that happen. The betrayal. <laughs> I got to wow. betray Georgia. I'm sorry, man, because, because last week, I know Trevor mentioned it, Georgia only put up 14 points in this game. Uh, or no, Georgia only put up 14 points in this game, my bad. Uh, but that wasn't even the bigger story of the game. The bigger story of the game was that the dogs lost a lot of players on defense. And I don't think uh, a lot of those players will be back for the, uh, for this game. Richard LeCount, our star safety. Uh, he got into a motorcycle accident after the game that added um, 
salt to the wound uh, to already a huge piling injury list. If Georgia doesn't have majority of those players that were injured in that game against this high-powered Florida offense, they're not going to stand a chance one bit with how pathetic their offense has looked the last uh, the last couple of couple of weeks. And I know Callen, he's tuning in right now. Callen is probably gonna Callen is probably gonna you know make a clip of me picking Florida to beat Georgia. I'll probably see, I'll probably see it on my yeah my six sports network page any any time now. I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> But I go, gotta go with the Gators. It's it's too much to overcome. And our viewers cannot believe this moment right now. Isaiah going against his Georgia Bulldogs and picking the Florida Gators. Um, guys, I'm gonna have to agree with both of y'all. Um, Florida is gonna win this game. Georgia's defense is tremendous. They have a great um, secondary and they have some great linebackers. However, I do agree with Isaiah. Their injuries have definitely plagued this team, yet they were able to hold Kentucky to three points. Florida isn't a Kentucky, um, and, you know, I see their high-powered offense being able to score a lot more than three points and a lot more than 14 points for that matter. Um, Georgia's able to run the ball very well. However, Stetson Bennett the third or the fourth, I forgot what it is, um, but he is not the answer. Last week's three point, 14 points on offense were all on him. Zamir White was able to get his. Stetson Bennett threw two interceptions against a bad Kentucky team here. Um, and I just don't think that he's going to be able to get it done against Kyle Pitts. And Trevor, I got I to gotta ask this, man. What, what would this Georgia team look like if they had that bad man Justin Fields under center right now? I'm glad he transferred <laughs> to our Buckeyes and is not there in Athens, Georgia anymore. All I will say is, Georgia would have been the king of the SEC. That's all I would be saying right now. They would be a, they would have beaten Alabama this year. They would have definitely had the chance to do it, or at least be down by a touchdown and get the revenge in the SEC championship game for sure. Agreed. And I think, again, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. The biggest mistake of Kirby Smart's career was going with Jake Fromm over Justin Fields. Understand why he did it. Um, you know, you're in a tough position when you have to make that decision. But looking back at it, huge mistake. And it played out great for our Buckeyes. I'm very glad that we have uh, J Justin Fields starting at quarterback over Tate Martell. <laughs> Enough said about college football. Let's move on to the NFL. And our first pick -em is going to be the Sunday night matchup, highly anticipated between the Saints and the Buccaneers. Trevor, I'm going to go to you first. Who do you have winning this matchup, the Saints or the Bucks? Like I said at the beginning of the year when I saw this matchup week one, I picked the Saints because Tom Brady was getting acclimated to the system. Now he's acclimated to the system, and I'm going with the Bucks. He's built his Avenger squad. He's going to take care of business, and he's going to put the beat down on Drew Brees and the Saints. And the Saints have just, you know, Emmanuel Sanders just came off of COVID, so he He's getting back to the swing of things. But the Saints just haven't been the team that we all thought they were going to be this year. And they just feel like a little bit flat. And I know Tampa Bay has just been solid ever since, you know, throughout the season with only their two losses. They've been just taking care of business. 
and just showing that they are a playoff caliber team and they're going to try to make a playoff push or at least win this division. So I'm going to go with Tom Brady and the Bucks. Definitely agreed with you there. Isaiah, who do you have winning this game? Wow, uh, this game is going to be the main entree of week nine in the NFL. Um, it's Drew Brees, Tom Brady. Uh, you have Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders on one side, Antonio Brown, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin on the other side, and not to mention Alvin Kamara, the running back, versus Leonard Fournette, Ronald Jones. Off, like it's gonna be a great, great game. I can't wait for this one. But I gotta side with Trevor and go with the Buccaneers because I just think that Tampa, uh, they've looked really good recently. I think they they're hitting their stride right now. Uh, they're they got Antonio Brown now. Rob Gronkowski has looked like uh, the Rob Gronkowski of old in the recent weeks. Um, Tom Brady's played really well. I think he's finally getting used to this new system under Bruce Arians. They're running the football really well. The offensive line is blocking really well. Chris Godwin is going to come back in this game. The defense is one of the best defenses in the NFL. And like Trevor said, the Saints, they just haven't looked that good like we expected them to look uh, so far this year. So I got to go with the Bucks over the Saints in this game. Yeah, and I think that makes three of us um... – we all talk about Tom Brady and how great he's played this season. Huge Tom Brady fan here as a Patriots fan. Um, you know, always rooting for the Bucks this year. But I got to give some love to that Tampa Bay defense. They've been outstanding this season. Um, you know, their front seven is one of the best in the league, if not the best in the league. And I think that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just have a little bit too much talent and a little bit um, too much momentum going into this game. Uh, for the Saints to pull off the upset here. So I'm going to go with the Tampa Bay Bucks. And uh, Casey King agrees with all of us, and he has Tampa beating the Saints as well. Uh, but Christy Wilson, however, has the Saints winning because she likes Drew Brees. And one thing to point out about this game, guys, is that we have this back and forth between Tom Brady and Drew Brees for the highest number of career touchdowns. And that might continue in this game where they go head-to-head. So you may see, you know, one of them taking the lead after a touchdown pass and then the other one, um, you know, coming back and taking the lead again. So definitely an interesting anecdote to this game where they'll be battling to see who has more touchdowns and who can maintain that lead moving forward. Um, so the next NFL game we have to pick uh, is the Tennessee Titans, uh, who are playing at home versus Callan McClurg's uh, Chicago Bears. Um, who do you guys have in this game? Do you have the Titans pulling off the win or do you have the Bears uh, pulling off the – I think it would be an upset here. Do you guys have the Bears pulling off the upset? I'm going to go with Isaiah first. I'm going to go with the Titans because I've never believed in the Bears, uh, never ever this season. The Bears, I I thought, have been one of the biggest frauds in the NFL. Uh, their offense uh, has not really lived up to expectations, and, and that's just saying it kindly. Um, Nick Foles has been bad. Mitchell Trubisky, he's been bad. I think Nick Foles is not even going to play this game because uh, of injury. So they're going to be starting Mitchell, the bum, Trubisky, like Callen says. The Tennessee Titans with Tannehill, Derrick Henry. Uh, I just think they're like they're a better football team than those fraud Bears. So I'm going to go with the Titans over the Bears. 
Yeah, definitely some injury concerns there for Chicago. However, Trevor, we got to mention that Tennessee going into this game has lost two in a row. Uh, not only did they lose to the Pittsburgh Steelers, but they last week they lost in an upset, major upset to Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bears also, as of late, have been losing games after a hot start. Both of these teams, still very good teams. However, you know, they've cooled off recently. Which one of these teams do you see um, you know, winning this game and maybe getting a positive going into the rest of the season? I'm going to say this game is going to be a slugfest from start to finish. Low-scoring game. I'm going to say like the highest scoring is going to be like 20 to 17. I think the Titans are going to pull it out. But this is going to be good, old-school, old-fashioned football where the run game is going to dominate this game from start to finish. So be prepared for that slugfest in this game flying by with that clock. And I think just the Titans around, they came off of two in a low row losses. They don't want to go to three losses straight. So they're going to snap back and be able to put this game away and they'll be in the driver's seat for the rest of their season. So I think this is a game where they snap back in reality and just dominate the Bears. Agreed with all you guys. And, and Christy Wilson here says Derrick Henry is a beast. Agree. I think Derrick Henry is the best running back in the NFL. Um, I think that the Titans pull this one off. Uh, although Callan McClurg says that Nick Foles is playing and not Mitch Trubisky. So it will be a little bit more challenging for the Titans to win this game. But I'm going to go with the Tennessee Titans. I believe in Ryan Tannehill. I believe in Mike Rabel. I believe in Derrick Henry. Um, and I have a, I have the Tennessee Titans pulling off this game. Shardell Gupta um, says go Bears. So I guess that means that he has the Bears winning. So interesting to see. And I think that whoever wins this game is going to have a major boost to their momentum because both of these teams seem to be more on the wrong end of the games um, over the past few weeks. And, and the win is needed by both of these teams to continue that hot start that we saw from either of them. Um, so with that being said, let's go into our next segment, our last segment of the day today, guys. We are going to do our Power Five. All right, guys, so we have a very special Power 5 segment coming to you guys today. Um, it's actually a very interesting one. Who are the top teachers, Power 5 top teachers that you guys have had uh, throughout your schooling, throughout your college career? Um, who are those teachers that kind of had the most impact on you? And joining us for this one is our special guest and uh, anchor, Callan McClurg. How are you doing today, Callan? Good to see you, fellas. How we doing? Good to Pretty see you good. as well. We're doing Not well. Not good. Not good at all. I just <laughs> had to pick against Georgia. If I had a bag here, I would, you know, puke in it. But unfortunately, <laughs> I don't. Good luck with that. It's been, it's been a painful. You're in the bargain wearing that cheese head at least. So good sport. Good man. Exactly. It's been a painful day for Isaiah having to wear his cheese head, having to pick against his Georgia Bulldogs. I can I can tell that he's ready for the show to be over. But before the show's over, we have to do our Power 5 top teachers of your life. Um, for this, I'm going to go to Trevor Williams first. Trevor, who are the top five teachers that you've ever had? It took me a while to come up through this list. 
and just like thinking about it and like saying I'm being biased and why I rank these teachers in a certain way. But at the end of the day, they're all have a certain special in my heart. So in reality, they're all number one. But I just had to pick five that I really, you know, remember the most through my, I guess, academic career. So number five would be fifth grade. My math teacher really got me into math. So he was Mr. Messa, fantastic teacher. Learned a lot from him. And he was also my brother's math teacher when he was in fifth grade. My brother's two years older than me. So it was like that, you know, older brother, younger brother combination. So you could see, you know, the different brothers and just have that whole, you know, connection between the two siblings. And then the next one would be my reading teacher, also in fifth grade, Miss Wake. She was fantastic. We did gingerbread houses during Christmas time. One of my friends, when I was in that room, made Snoopy's doghouse out of graham crackers. So I'll never forget that she gave us more graham crackers compared to all the other classrooms. So it was like a way to just explore and just be so creative in that space. And I love her and thank for thank her for that and getting me into reading and exploring my creative writing side. Now I would go finally go into college a little bit with my first year, I guess, English class with Professor Kelly. He was a fantastic professor, got me really into college, really honed in my writing skills, crafted me a lot of good papers and resumes and just been a, such a beneficial partner, just getting me through my college career. And we're still good friends to this day. So I think, you know, Professor Carlos Kelly, all that he does that are at Ohio State and being a great professor and a friend. Now I go back to sixth grade in middle school when I had my reading teacher that also, you know, helped me get through reading. And his name was Mr. Matthews. And we spent so much time in that class. We watched film, like sometimes we watched Man vs. Wild, watch um, war games so if you know the whopper and any of those games and the bad seed films like i watched that in sixth grade and a lot of good stuff and i will never forget that class but the one teacher that i have that ranks supreme is my senior year honors humanities class mr sams he taught me the hero's journey and anytime i watched lord of the rings i'd be like i know the hero's journey i can call out all the roles by all these characters and i never looked at film the same after that class so I thank him for all the things that he was able to teach me. And I also thank all the other teachers that I didn't mention throughout my academic career. Without you guys, I wouldn't be in the position where I am today at Ohio State in my senior year, about to wrap this school up in the spring semester of next year. Can't wait. Very well, well said. Well said, Trevor. Agree with Very Kyle. well said. Yeah. And Callan, let's go to you next. Uh, who are your Power Five teachers? You know, I had to, like Trevor, this was probably, uh, for, for one, I if I didn't come on this show and not give out my power five of a category I actually picked for the program, that would probably do us all, uh, it wouldn't do justice. Uh, but I actually wrote four honorable mentions because, you know, like Trevor, I think Trevor said it best though, fellas, is, you know, these people have had an impact in our lives, good impact, maybe a bad impact, but they have done their part though to make us who we are. Uh, but I have written a couple of honorable mentions because, you know, like Trevor, I'm still friends with a lot of these, you know, amazing people on the web. They still follow my career, follow my journey. Uh, but I'll go with uh, Mrs. Knight. Uh, she was my sixth grade social studies teacher. Uh, we had a big thing or, you know, we were obviously close because uh, she is a USD alum. And I obviously now work at the school. But at the time, I was a big fan of USD. Uh, with having family that's worked at the school and always going to basketball games. So we had that thing going for, you know, rooting for the same school. 
I have to also uh, shout out Kim Oliver. At the time, it was Kim Morris, but she was my sixth grade math teacher. Uh, helped me, which I'll get to a story a little bit uh, later with my number one teacher. Uh, but uh, Miss uh, Mrs. Morris, Mrs. Oliver, she was awesome. Uh, loved the way she would teach and the way that she was very hands-on with stuff and would always help me out because I struggled big time with math. Uh, Don Wood, my seventh grade seventh grade or eighth grade science teacher. He was a very laid back guy, was always welcoming to me if I needed anything to help out. I would help him out after school with the yearbook or help out with other stuff he needed done. And also uh, one guy that really helped uh, with me with my love for writing is Bob Swaggart, my eighth grade English teacher. There was a day, guys, and I tell the story a lot uh, because I've always been known as, you know, a podcast host or a announcer, you know, public address or play by play. But Mr. Swagger, my eighth grade science, uh, eighth grade English teacher, was the guy that kind of got my love for writing started in high school uh, or more so middle school, I should say, going into high school. Uh, there was a day that we came into a, to a class because I always had his English class after lunch. We would go, you know, first period, second period, lunch three and, and then periods three and four. So he was my third period class. And there was a day that I walked in and saw that the assignment was to write a story about what you thought was the big news of the day. And around this time, you know, with me being a big advocate for women's sports, Candace Parker was just drafted the day beforehand as the number one overall uh, pick in the 2008 WNBA draft. So what was supposed to be like maybe a paragraph or two turned into three pages about her career and her time there. And that kind of started my love for writing and sports writing in general around that time. So those are all my honorable mentions. Uh, Power five for me, though, uh, first number five goes to Mr. Mahalik, my eighth grade science teacher. Uh, only reason, guys, is uh, Mr. Mahalik was a teacher of my brother and my dad and my uncles at one point at PB Junior High School in San Diego. So it was like a generational thing of like every single one of us had Mr. Mahalik in science or had Mr. Hollis in science. But I had Bob. Uh, my brother had Pat, uh, Pat Hollis when he was here. But a uh, great guy. Him and I would always watch uh, sports science when it was on FSN West, uh, where we would, you know, you know, sit at lunch. Like Trevor said, though, with his teachers, like sit at lunch and watch movies. But we would sit and watch, you know, sports being used for science experiments, like you know, with, uh, you know, uh, massive force with hits and stuff like that, and kind of get a feel for how science really does make sports work in regards to certain things. So Bob Mahalik is number five. Uh, number four is Mike Nelson, who was a three-year math teacher for me at uh, when I was in high school after I moved from one school to another. Uh, Mike was a great guy, would always talk sports with me, would also help me uh, calculate like averages and calculate statistical stuff, uh, but it was also a great guy. And really, I think the thing that set him apart from other uh, teachers I had, he didn't grade grade you on how well you did but he graded your homework on how much effort you put forth. If you got through 85%, 90%, that's, that's what your grade was. It wasn't based on right answers, wrong answers, but as long as you showed effort for it, that's what he graded you on. And he was that way for three years, so I thank him dearly for that. Uh, number three is Mrs. Lindsay Dial. She was also a teacher that my brother had in, in uh, middle school. Uh, she was my sixth grade English teacher. Never forget, she calls roll the first day of school when I first start out in sixth grade. And she goes through the roles and I can see her like kind of looking up and double taking because she sees the last name. She comes over and gives me a high five. She said, I had your brother when he was in sixth grade. So two pretty cool little stories there. Uh, number two for me is Joe McDonald. Joe was my ninth grade English teacher when I was at my old school. 
Uh, Joe was kind of a guy that was a English teacher for kids that may have struggled perhaps on the states on the standardized state testing. So there was like a special class that he would teach to kind of get kids back up to par for reading and for writing. And the, my favorite story about Mr. McDonald guys is I had to write a persuasive essay about like a controversial topic. So majority of the kids are writing about like, you know, that we should have more distinction of what we take for classes, teen, you know, teen pregnancy, you know, stuff that there was kind of hounding them in, as a freshman. But at this time, me being the sport, the sports nut that I am at this time, though, San Diego State University was in the process of, of uh, shifting the naming rights of their basketball arena from a cable company to a casino and a Indian tribe. And I thought as a sports fan, what I want or what I condone gambling on a college campus. So I wrote this thing out. I had a lot of numbers backing my uh, my stance about that it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be called, you know, in name of the tribe. And to this very day, Mr. McDonald still has that paper as like a example for his students to, you know, to how to, to write a, to write an essay. And I'm very, you know, proud and honored that uh, that essay that I wrote is one of uh, still in his um, uh, is still in his archive and still around there. But guys, if there's one teacher I have to absolutely thank for what they did for me, it's actually a tie. Denise Stewart and Carolyn Clark, my third and fourth grade teachers, guys. I've been very open about this the past couple of years, but I have struggled majorly with dyslexia, uh, with some other uh, visual uh, impairments that have kind of that have hindered me throughout my life and throughout school. School and Denise and Carolyn were the first two people and teachers I had that were there backing me, like something's not right here. You know, let's see what we can find. And they diagnosed me pretty much with all the stuff that I have. So I thank them both dearly for their role in shaping me into what I've been and, you know, to be a kind of in a way, someone out there that, you know, usually says if there's something holding you back, don't tell people you can't do something. And I've been very open about this battle I've had more so recently than in years past. I didn't want to have anyone have sympathy for me or, you know, or, you know, feel sorry. I just, you know, Hey, it's the hand I've been dealt and I have to work through it and get over it and things like that. But I owe Denise Stewart and Carolyn Clark, my third and fourth grade, uh, fourth grade teachers, a, uh, a lot of love and respect for what they did for me and uh, where I'm at now. And uh, sadly, I've lost contact with them, but uh, I think they'd be pretty proud of where things have gone. And that's where I sit on my power five, fellas. Awesome, Callan. Definitely well said. And it seems like you've had a plethora of teachers that have had a huge impact on you. And that's always Absolutely. great to hear because we want to see, we want to see that these people in the education system are doing their job and, and are going beyond above and beyond to really uh, foster the young minds and, and have an impact on what they do today. Um, so I'm going to go to you. Agreed. I'm going to go to you next, Isaiah. Uh, who are your top five power five teachers that you've had uh, throughout your schooling days? You're on mute, buddy. Everybody boo that man. <laughs> the entire day has just not been good for me, guys. Like I woke up this or I slept this morning at 6:30 a.m. Woke up because there was some guy pounding outside my house and drilling and uh but to my list, man, like Callan and Trevor said, I just wanna um you know take a moment and just say that you know if you're left off my list. Uh, don't feel bad. Don't feel like, you know, 
it's not because you know I didn't appreciate you. There were just so many teachers that have influenced me so much in my life uh, for me to count and for me to you know pack it into a five like a yeah power five list is just really really hard. Uh, but I want to thank all the teachers in my life that have really uh, influenced me and made me the person who I am. I want to thank you guys for what you guys done. But number five, I'm going to go with Coach Ball. Coach Ball was uh, my high school football coach. Um, so I like I back then, I think I was like. I probably was like five, five, a hundred. No, no. I was like five, five, 95 pounds at that time. I was really skinny. Wasn't really that tall. And I decided, you know what? I, I, I'm really interested into football and I really wanted to try out for the football team. And it didn't really go that well for me because, you know, the, a lot of the players there that uh, were trying out, they were like six, one, 290. You had a guy there that was like five, eight, 300. So like out of everybody that there, I look like a complete skeleton. And, um, you know, when it was my turn to try out, like I did, I did it to my best of my abilities, but unfortunately I didn't make the team because obviously I was so skinny. I was so short. And if, if, you know, like if I got hit in a football game, you probably see me in a hospital right now paralyzed because that's how skinny I was. So, you know, I want to thank coach ball. Like even though like he didn't coach me personally, um, he, he let, like, he let me, like he let, uh, he, he, you know, he rejected me in a way that it wasn't really uh, too hurtful. He just said, like, yo, kid, um, I really like your skills. But unfortunately, like, we can't add you to the team because, you know, we don't really want you to get hurt. And, you know, we put you on the team and you play and you get hurt badly, you know, uh, it will it will really hurt us and hurt you as well. So, you know, I thank you for letting me down lightly. I really appreciate that and really looking out for me because I don't even know what I was doing trying to try out for a football team at that time, even though I never played but no, I did play uh, football in middle school, but it was mostly um, either two hand touch or flag football. So I was kind of, you know, out of my league by doing that. So Coach Ball, thank you so much. Number four on my list got to be um, Mr. McCauley or Mr. M as we called him. He was my 11th, 11th grade and 12th grade English teacher. He was super nice. He was super chill, super laid back. I mean, every Friday we would have something called Fun Friday where instead of, you know, reading a novel or writing essays, we would just go to like come together and play like apples to apples and or watch a movie or stuff like that he would find a way to um have fun while tying the games or the movie into something that was english related so i thought it was really good um and it was just so much fun to have him as a teacher number three has got to be mr parsons uh he was my seventh seventh or eighth grade in, uh, history teacher um but he was just so much fun, man. I mean, this guy, uh, he loves sports. He talked sports. And most importantly, you know, we both connected because, you know, we both were huge sports nut. I mean, he's a huge Chicago fan. He loved the Bears, just like my guy Callum right here. He loved the Bulls. He loved the, uh, the Blackhawks. And at that time, I think this was in 2010, the Bears, the Bulls, the Blackhawks were all great at that time. And, you know, we would just spend – 
every after school, I would just after yeah after school, I would just go to his class and just um, talk sports with him. And you know, I would even sit down. He would have the TV on, and we, we would have like an NBA game, an NBA playoff game, or an MLB uh, playoff game, or an MLB game going on, and we would just sit together, just watch, just like talk about it, which was, I think it was amazing. And then uh, number two, it's got to be Mrs. Manley, my third grade teacher. Um, Mrs. Manley was super nice. She was super loving. Um, I was kind of a rascal back in third grade, believe it or not. Uh, I was like kind of a troublemaker uh, and you know, like she, she didn't really get that mad at me for some of the stuff that, you know, I did back in uh, third grade. Uh, you know, one time, like I remember I, like I was so fixated on uh, being a little kid. I was so fixated on fire trucks, garbage trucks and boats at the same time. So every, I guess it was like every 10 AM, um, the garbage truck would come over and, you know, pick up the garbage at our school. And, you know, the building, like the class that I was, or yeah, the building that our class was located in, it was literally like, I would say about 10 yards away from where the dumpster was. So like every time I would just like tell Miss Manley that, uh, you know, I, I needed to go to the bathroom. I really needed to go to the bathroom, but instead I would just sneak out and watch the garbage trucks, uh, you know, take the garbage, take the dumpster. And, you know, I would like that. I would probably be there for like 15 minutes and then I would go back to class and then, like she, she, she did find out eventually. She told me like, "Hey, Isaiah, you can't be doing that because you'll get in big trouble." And I got into big trouble that day for doing that. But hey, um, listen, I'm sorry for being a rascal. I'm sorry for doing that type of stuff. Uh, I was a really like I was a kid at that time, really fixated on that. But thank you for being so patient with me. Thank you for being so loving and so kind. Really appreciate you. And last but not least, I don't know if she's watching, but. Number one has got to be Mrs. Ferraria. She wasn't my teacher, but she was the librarian of our school. And I was her TA um, in my senior year. And, you know, she was just the nicest person on the earth. It was so much fun. Every first period, going there, delivering newspapers to different classrooms, delivering uh, books to different classrooms. Uh, she would let me, like, you know, because back in high school, I didn't really have that many friends. Uh, so, you know, I would just sit uh, in the back of the library or in the teacher's work area and just eat my lunch there, which she let me, which I was so thankful to her for. Um, she, she's just so nice. She loves baseball. She's an old school baseball fan. We talked about baseball all the time, even though I'm an A's fan and, you know, she's a Giants fan. But we just clicked on so many levels and she was just so nice, so loving. And, you know, I'm forever grateful. Uh, for what she did for me back in uh, high school. And she gave me so much advice as well, which to this day, I am just so thankful to her. I, I have two more honorable mentions. I'd be very remiss if I did not mention them. I know my list is very long for honorable, like, but like Isaiah and Trevor said, though, you know, we don't want to feel like we're leaving anybody out because everyone's had an impact on us in some capacity. But I, I have two more that just popped in my head. They're both probably watching, but they're two, though, probably my biggest fans, fans now of my career. Uh, that's Corey Burgess, who was a computer science, like a uh, 
computer mapping uh, teacher I had for about two weeks, but I had to drop the class, sadly. But uh, Mrs. Burgess and I had a very nice connection because we're both hockey fans, and Corey's from Toronto. She's a big Maple Leafs fan. So the only assignment I got a chance to do while I was in her class was to dream or uh, map out your dream vacation. And mine is actually a bucket list. It's to go watch a NHL game at every NHL arena in Canada and end the trip going to the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. So I would go from Calgary to Edmonton or from Vancouver to Calgary to Edmonton to, uh, to Winnipeg, to Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, and then end the trip at the Hockey Hall of Fame. That was the only assignment I think I got to work on that I had to drop the class and needed other classes, sadly. And the last one is Mrs. Hagen, my 11th grade uh, U.S. history teacher. Um, I was going through a lot, uh, a lot my junior year in high school, but she and I clicked though, because we had a very, you know, mutual love for sports. And I was on the high school baseball team. And that season, she's like, hey, the only game you have you guys have to worry about winning is beating Madison, because that was our big rival when I was at the school I was at. But her and I clicked. We still talk to this day, and she's probably are both uh Mrs. Burgess and Miss Hagen are probably still two of my biggest fans of my career. So I wanted to make sure I got those two ladies in there before we handed over to Shri. Definitely, Callum. That's great. You know, great that you guys shared that bond over hockey, but, you know, too bad she's a Maple Leafs fan. That's all I can say. <laughs> I still love her, even if she likes Toronto. Exactly. So I'm going to get into my Power Five uh, teachers here briefly uh, before we go to our final thoughts. So at number five, I've got to have my professor of economics at OSU, uh, Bruce Bellner. I think he's Dr. Bruce Bellner. And this was one of those classes that you have at these big state schools where you hear about, you know, 500 person or 300 person. I don't even remember, but it was a huge lecture hall. And, you know, you had all these students and and he had so many people to to like take to grade, to, you know, talk about, to like help out. And, you know, economics was something that I was really passionate about. And, and at that time, I was trying to decide between a few different majors. So him being a, my economics professor, I reached out to him for advice about, you know, which major should I take? Should I minor in econ? Should I major in something else? And, and this was a really impactful decision because it would impact what, what type of uh, career I have and what direction I move in in the future. So, you know, I consulted with him. And what surprised me was despite the class size, despite the fact that he was, you know, teaching this huge class and he had all these research papers and a lot of different things to do. He actually took the time to like sit down and talk with me and understand what my goals were, understand what my interests were, understand, you know, who I am as a person and really help me in framing that decision and uh, honestly, like putting me on the path I am today. So definitely props to him for that and, and definitely respect him taking that time to talk to a college freshman um, who is uncertain about, you know, different career choices and different paths that, you know, it can lead you down because at times it can be very, very overwhelming and, and very ambiguous in terms of picking the correct major or the correct concentration. So definitely really appreciated him and, and his help with that. Um, my number four on my list has to be Mr. Kellogg. Uh, he was my ninth grade history teacher. So Mr. Kellogg was, um, you know, this really like laid back hipster guy from Seattle. Uh, he introduced me to grunge music and Nirvana, which I think was really funny. Um, he, so he used to have before tests, he used to have these, uh, these uh, quiz, like these um, like Jeopardy type competitions, right? Where you, where you'd have to guess the answers to different questions that were going to be on the test. It would A, help you prepare for the test and B, whoever won would get extra credit. And uh, 
he always used to have this like musical section where he would play like different, completely different genres and different bands. And, you know, it would be exactly, he would, he would have you guess it. And uh, initially I used to get all of them wrong and I'm like, wow, I could, I could jam out to this. I can really jam out to this music. And so I uh, went home and looked up all the music uh, and then, you know, saw the related videos on YouTube and kept watching and kept going deeper and deeper. And by the end of the year, I was guessing those, uh, you know, tracks better than anyone else in the class. So <laughs> definitely had a huge impact on my musical taste um, and was was very was also a very good teacher and taught me a lot about history. And, and actually, um, you know, history was an area that I wasn't maybe as interested in initially going into high school, but he definitely put me on that track to Today, I'm very interested in history. I'm very interested in world events. And, and I definitely think that his style of teaching and, and his personality kind of put me on that track. So really appreciate it. And he's one of the more fun teachers I have on this list. Um, so at number four, I'm going to have another um, civics teacher here. Uh, my eighth grade civics class, it was Mr. Paulus. Um, and he, I remember this uh, clearly because that was the year that we're having that election. Uh, it was 2008. Um, you know, there was a big election between Barack Obama and John McCain that year. And as somebody who was, you know, um, uh, maybe, a, I think, 13 years old, 12 years old, 2008, 13 years old then, um, you know, I really didn't have an understanding of how politics in this country worked, how the voter system worked, how, you know, the electoral college worked, or how all of these different, you know, pol political, I guess, political policies and 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 uh and systems worked right so i didn't know what the president was doing i didn't know what you know i knew there was a senate and a congress but i didn't know really what they did and he kind of took those real life events that were happening and kind of broke it down in class and and really got us talking about you know what policies each of these people uh, are standing for you know how these people are elected you know it doesn't matter that uh, if you disagreed with Barack Obama or if you disagreed with John McCain, it didn't really matter um, in the grand scheme of things because although they're your president, there are checks and balances in place so that you know they don't just do whatever they want. And and as somebody who is young and really impressionable, listening to all these news and headlines about how the country will be over if this person won or how you know we're all we're all doomed if this other person won. It kind of brought you back to reality and brought you back to say that we have this democracy and we have this great system in place so that you know this type of stuff doesn't happen so that we don't have a dictatorship where like if one candidate won, we're going in one direction versus another candidate going into another direction. So it definitely taught me to appreciate the political system and become involved in the political system encouraged me to vote you know when i was 18 encouraged me to read up more on the system understand the shortcomings and really to to be an informed american citizen which i think is very important especially in a time like this in a year like this i think it's very relatable to what I, what we went through back then as a 13 year old um in his class so definitely shout out to mr paulus there um at number two i'm gonna have my uh i'm gonna have to put my track coach, Coach Anderson, he was also a PE teacher, but I had him, I didn't have him for PE, I had him as a track coach. And what I really respected about him was, you know, his um, his passion for the, the sport, his passion for the area. Um, you know, he was a great coach. You could always go to him and ask him questions, ask him about techniques, ask him about, you know, what's going on in the world of track, and he'd be happy to share it with you. 
Um, you know, he's a funny guy. You know, he he really, uh, like Isaiah said, he, or I think like you said, Callan, he really recognized those who put in effort and those who wanted Absolutely. to get better, right? And sometimes, oftentimes in high school, you see these coaches, um, you know, put a lot of emphasis on the players that play well or the high performers. And what really stuck out to me about Mr. Anderson was he was proud of every single person on that team, regardless of whether they were the best runner or the last runner, right? Whether they're the, the furthest shot put thrower or the worst shot put thrower. He just wanted to see you work towards your personal goals and work towards your personal best. And he was not scared to go out there and, you know, throw you into these situations that would force you to, to kind of put out your best. And, you know, even if you didn't perform in those situations, he would be there to pick you back up and say, it's not the end of the world. You do you, you get better. And I remember that uh, back then, you know, going into college, something that I really wanted to do was I wanted to be able to be a better runner. I wanted to be able to, um, you know, I, I was a bigger guy. I wanted to be able to uh, run faster. I wanted to be able to run longer. And as a thrower, as somebody who, you know, was had a particular purpose on the team, he was really encouraging me to, you know, step away from that and work towards what I personally wanted to do. So he had me as somebody who was, you know, one of the one of the shot put throwers and one of the discus throwers run with the long distance folks, run with the sprinters, kind of understand from their coaches how these guys are training, how these guys are, um, you know, getting to where they want to get. And I really appreciate that because I know a lot of coaches, you know, they, they say that one person does something really well and they just want you to look at what you do well um, and not really look at other areas where you can grow or other areas where they can expose you to. And Coach Anderson definitely did not have that mindset. And he had, you know, the personal growth and, and the goals of each of his players in mind. Uh, rather than, you know, just a win first mentality. So definitely appreciate him for that. And it didn't hurt that, you know, we had one of the better tra track teams in the state, but, you know, definitely appreciate him um, helping me work towards my personal goals. And number one, I have to have uh, my orchestra teacher all the way from sixth grade until when he retired in ninth grade, Mr. Hagar. Um, he really instilled my passion for music much in a way that I spoke about with, with you know, my history teacher from ninth grade, Mr. Kellogg. But this time it was it was for playing music, you know. Uh, I just started out the violin and everybody I remember had started out playing the violin in fourth grade because that's when, you know, you went to the instrument fair, picked out your instrument and then started playing. I was a little bit late to the game, you know. I didn't pick an instrument, you know. In fifth grade, I, I picked, you know, the drums, then I picked the clarinet and I was like, you know, none of these are really for me. And then finally in sixth grade, you know, I. I kind of decided that, you know, I really wanted to play the violin and this is something that I really wanted to be able to do. And Mr. Hagar, he was really patient and helped me a lot. He had one-on-one -on -one classes with me to help me get to that level. He had, you know, we had a hundred people, I think between the middle school and high school orchestra, yet he was able to sit down with me and really help me work on my skills, work on playing the basics and really get me up to speed in terms of playing the violin. And, I remember that he was so passionate about it and he was so involved in each of his students that, you know, he really didn't see it being, um, you know, a waste of his time to sit there and spend time with each person to really understand them and to really, you know, see how he could make them better. And one thing that sticks out to me is, um, you know, what my dad actually ran into him uh, years after, um, you know, I was done uh, playing 
with him and you're Shree, I think you think you're muted. Shree, you're muted, buddy. <laughs> oh, it's the worst possible time. There Sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, so he hadn't he hadn't known me for over eight years at this point, and he ran into my dad. Um, you know, in a different professional setting. And, and he saw my dad was, you know, Mr. Anand. And, and he came up to my dad and he said, um, am, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Yeah, Did we I can out? You're, you're good. You're back. I can't hear you, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> so he ran into my dad and he said, you know, how is Sri doing? How is he, is he still playing the violin? Does he like playing the violin? You know, did I instill something in him that, that he carries with him for life? And that really stuck out to me because he had, you know, 200 students a year. And the fact that he remembered me after eight years of retiring was just impressive to me and really stood out about how much he invested in each of his students and how much he was willing to uh, help us all out and uh, to really help us be the best musicians that we can be. So that's my power five. Um, definitely shout out to all teachers that I've had. You know, I've never really had a bad teacher, uh, maybe some less memorable teachers, but everybody has had some sort of an impact on where I am today. And definitely shout out to all the teachers out there. Really appreciate what you're doing and, and really, um, important job, especially during these times, to keep those uh, kids engaged and to get help them get to where they want to get. Um, so with that being said, uh, let's move on to our final thoughts here, guys. All right. So first for today's final thoughts, I'm going to go to Trevor. All right, so I want to throw in some honorable mentions for some teachers. I added more time to think. I'm going to just talk here, and I'm book friends with them. So it will be Kevin Dealey, who was my American lit teacher in my sophomore year of high school and my British lit teacher in my junior year of high school. It was a fantastic time going through that class, having a teacher going from 6th grade to 11th grade. <laughs> more technical difficulties on the mi6 you can't you know be mi6 without that but yeah with his experience it, i just had a great time in that classroom and it just been very beneficial for my years in high school and i thank him for everything that he did and then my second teacher i would like to say is beth vulture who is my world history teacher in 11th grade we had time to do yoga in class one day and just had make history more fun and enjoyable and just was a great atmosphere to be a part of. And I was in love that class and the people who was in that class, it was great from start to finish. So I want to thank her for that. Besides my teachers, this was a fantastic show, though we've been on it for two hours and 33 minutes. It's been a journey, but hey, it's glad to be back on the No BS episodes. Season two, episode 14. Can't wait for more episodes. Can't wait for the Thanksgiving episode. So we got a lot of good stuff in store for y'all this month. 
Definitely well said, Trevor. Thank you for that. And uh, apologize for my technical difficulties uh, today. Uh, but let's go to Callan next. Callan, what are your final thoughts today? Mike, like Trevor, I have uh, one. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. I had one more honorable mention for sure, though, uh, in regards to, again, uh, teachers. Again, you know, it, it, it kind of sucks that we had to do, you know, Power Five, but then we have a laundry list, guys, of, you know, uh, so many honorable mentions out there. I, I have to throw one more in there. I'd be remiss if I uh, did not uh, include this guy, too, but Mr. Caligari, who was the uh, student television um, student television uh, teacher. He actually had two classrooms at the first school I went to in high school, and, he, and literally the second, uh, the second classroom was a full-blown TV studio. I got to work with him, and uh, my co-anchor now works at, uh, on local radio here, uh, in San Diego. So I think uh, Bob uh, a whole lot. He gave me, you know, all the freedom in the world to go out and shoot my own stand-ups and cover uh, baseball games, basketball games, volleyball, soccer, field hockey, football games, you name it, uh, on the sideline recording uh, all the action and things like that. And then, of course, doing all the uh, student-run newscasts was always great. Uh, so I think Bob, uh, a, a great deal for kind of, you know, letting me get my feet wet with, you know, student-run or, for that matter, television news. But final thoughts, though, should be a great weekend, though, guys. Uh, plenty more coverage coming up as usual on Saturday and Sunday. The night shift will be back, of course, on Saturday and Sunday to recap all the big uh, games of the uh, weekend. And should be a very great uh, uh, weekend of both uh, college and pro football this week. And uh, we'll see if I'm up early enough to see, uh, if I'm up early enough to watch that USC Arizona State game. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that's got to be rough. You know, weekend at what nine. What the hell happened to my camera? Did Russia hack my camera? <laughs> this is for Isaiah, by the way. Oh, man. Oh. Isaiah never ceases to amaze, huh? But um, definitely definitely rough there, Callan. 9 a.m. start on the West Coast. I don't think I'd be up on a Saturday for 9 a.m. No, I, I pretty much laid out my final thoughts at 11.45 this morning local time when I was ranting about my Bears and ranting about this move by the Pac-12. So it is what it is. I'm probably going to watch the Michigan-Indiana game over the ASU-USC uh, game at this rate because that sounds like a more intriguing matchup than two schools starting out and playing on the West Coast at 9 o'clock in the morning. No, thank you. Yeah, definitely. And Christy Wilson says her final thoughts. Fun show tonight. Couldn't agree more. I love the Power Five segment. Although, you know, we went on for a while, but definitely all these people deserve our recognition. Absolutely. So much appreciated to you guys for sharing um, your thoughts there. So my final thoughts for today, you know, excited for another weekend of college football. Um, excited to, uh, you know, get started with some Pac-12 this weekend. Uh, like I said, I love watching those 10.30 p.m. Eastern kickoffs. Uh, you know, I'm drifting asleep, and I just get to see two great teams fighting uh, rather than watching, you know, some Mountain West. No offense to Mountain West or, or any other conference, but Pac-12 is so much better. Um, and it should be an interesting, um, interesting decision to see by the committee how they weigh uh, the schedules of the Pac-12 versus the other conferences. Of course, Pac-12 only having six in-conference games. So I'm excited to see that. I'm excited to see uh, who is going to make some noise. Um, and I'm excited to see, not really too excited, but still excited to see uh, my Ohio State Buckeyes take on Rutgers tomorrow. Um, I Guys, I wanted to discuss this. I think that uh, 
I think I'm trying to find it here now. Um, but I think Chardol had uh, Rutgers winning this game. So. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, definitely an interesting take there, and a definitely a uh, a more risky take, let's say. Um, but uh, those are my final thoughts. Happy, happy, some Pac-12 football is back, and, and excited to sit here and watch some uh, football on Saturday and Sunday here uh, as we go into the weekend. Isaiah, are you with us? I am with you guys. I don't know what happened to my camera. I had my camera literally 15 minutes ago. It was going Come on, great. Come Jimmy. We got to get this first down. Hasty's open. Hasty. Oh, my God. You take a damn sack. It was wide open. Are you far? <laughs> I don't know what happened to my camera. Like, something's weird's going on here. I think right, Russia might have had. No interception! Why would you throw it, man? Take the sack! Oh! Yeah. All right, Isaiah. With that being said, let's hear your final thoughts for today. Uh, my my final thoughts is first of all, I want to take the time right now and. Thank all of our viewers for uh, watching our show. I want to thank um, Christy Wilson, uh, Shardo Gupta, Casey King, Callan. Callan, thanks for watching early in the beginning. I just hope that uh, you know we don't have that uh, that video of me picking Florida to beat my Georgia Bulldogs on the MI6 Sports Network later on tonight. Um, let's see. Uh, hold on. I don't know. He's muted. He's You're bad. muted. He's good. I want to thank all of our uh, viewers out there for taking the time and viewing the show and giving us great love and support. Really appreciate you guys. You guys are truly the best fans on the planet. And, you know, we just can't ask for any more from you guys. So thank you guys so much. Um, my final thoughts is I want to, I want to, you know, take a moment right now and, just say I am so happy for Pac-12 football to be back. You got you guys know how big of a Keaton Slovis fan I am. I thought that after watching his first game against Stanford, I was like, "Yo, this kid is gonna be a number one pick in the uh for in the nearby future." And you know he's one of the best quarterbacks in college football. I hope he falls out tomorrow. Um, hopefully I can watch that game tomorrow. Uh, it's gonna be a great game. I can't wait, but. Keaton's going to show everybody why he's a top quarterback in the NFL and also or in college football. Um, and also, I can't wait to watch that Iowa State game, man. Like, come on. Like, you got Brock Purdy, the GOAT that I call him, the future Heisman Trophy winner, going up against, I believe, Baylor. That's going to be a great test for him. So hopefully he balls out in that game as well. And – also, yeah, Florida, Georgia, that's another great game. Just There's going to be a lot of great, great games happening in all of college football and also the NFL slate on Sunday, so I can't wait. It's going to be a great weekend of football. And last but not least, I got to say, guys, make sure you guys tune in to the night shift tomorrow with me and Callan because 
I am going to actually wear a cheese head shirt for you guys tomorrow night. You know, I couldn't really, you know, like find a cheese head. So I just decided to print a picture of a cheese head and, you know, just tape it on my shirt, which made it look utterly pathetic. But hey, that cheese head shirt is coming. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to hold up my end of the bargain on that promise that I made. So tune in tomorrow for that. And last but not least, ladies and gentlemen, like I said earlier today, do not go on social media at 4 a.m. in the morning. Because like the great Ted Mosby said on How I Met Your Mother, nothing good ever happens at two after 2 a.m. That's what got me into this predicament that I'm in right now with that cheese head. Learn from me, ladies and gentlemen. Never or don't go on social media when you're super drowsy and early in the morning. Isaiah, I don't think it was the time that had you in the predicament that you were in. I think it was your decisions that have you in the predicament you were in. Uh, but thank you for your final thoughts. To close us out, we have a grain break here. San Diego State defeating – or San Jose State defeating the San Diego State Aztecs 28-17 from Carson, California. Shardul Gupta is definitely going to be happy with that result. <laughs> That's my and, rival school losing, so I'm happy. And Callan McClurin result as well. We literally waited for the 243 mark, and we're bringing San Jose State into another episode of No Yes. Bravo. Bravo, man. Now we have the San Jose State streak going. It's like the wazoo fly for Washington State. Hey, you bring in Devin Booker to the episode, I can bring in San Jose State. Come on, Jimmy. We got to get this first down. Hasty's open. Hasty. Oh, my God. You take a damn sack. He was wide open. Are you far? <laughs> and with that, folks, seems like a great way to wrap up our show. Thank you so much for joining us. As uh, Callan and Isaiah said, please join them for the night shift tomorrow night. And please join us for Wild Sports Talk on Monday. Appreciate all you guys watching. Have a great weekend. And uh, hope you guys enjoy watching some college and pro football this weekend as we all will. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Have a good night. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye now. Yeah. Three C's, my fiat. Yeah. Whoa. Hey. Yeah. Whoa. Hey. Whoa. Playing with you in the club, in the street.